Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about uh, media and production, media production. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little more time on. Uh, we changed our schedule around a little bit today. We, we had a great, we had a great subject and uh, we moved it because I thought I was out of town and I was so selfish. I was like, I want to, I want to host that one. Um, and, uh, and so I was out of town, so I got moved and, and, we, and then, and then I was not out of town and Bill, Bill was feeling a under the weather. So we've, everything's been rearranged. So now we just got Q&A. So if you've got uh, questions, make sure to ask them. This is a great uh, day. We've got a great panel. Um, and uh, you can use this little QR code if you're not in Makana. That's uh, askofficehours.global. Uh, or you can go to Makana and you can ask questions, vote questions up. But we will go until you, we run out of questions. And so, uh, so go ahead and throw those questions in and make sure to vote on the questions. It's getting more and more important to vote because we really get a lot of questions and we need to know which ones you want us to answer. So let's go ahead and jump into the questions. And uh, go ahead, Mitch. Thank you, Alex. Uh, first up, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What is your favorite part of your job in media production? Go ahead, Chris. You know, Roscoe, uh, there's, uh, I'm obviously in post-production. I think you know that. Um, I like post because I've, I've realized over the years, I'm not very good at making things, but I'm better at making things better. And so i I like coming in, you know, toward the end and saying, oh, okay, let's polish this up. And I'll even go so far as to say that um, when we all worked um, under one roof, it was pretty common, mostly just based on my schedule, that we would let other editors start projects and then just let me come in and, like, run the ball over the, the goal line, so to speak. So that's my favorite part is, like, just, like, let's see what you got and try and make it a little better. I will say it's um, sometimes it's frustrating because you feel like, you know, you're the new captain dropped on the bow of the Titanic after Captain Smith just ran it into the iceberg. And, you know, this boat's going to go down no matter what I do. Um, but I like that part of it. I, I realize that my, if I ever do a post house, I just want to call it the lemonade factory. Because <laughs> you're making lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> we got to go that. That'd be a good one. Go ahead, Mitchell. I know this sounds like a smart answer, but it's truth. I like getting paid. And uh, yesterday I got paid on a job and the client sent me a nice thank you note telling me how much uh, they appreciated working on it. It just doesn't get any better than that when you get a client that likes what you did, thanks you for it, and they'll be back. Looks ahead, fake, Courtney. Mitchell. <laughs> I don't know if that's his handwriting. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, I like that too, especially like if the people above the director come up to you at the end of the shoot and thank you, the lowly, whatever you're doing, <laughs> and say, we couldn't have done this shoot without you. <laughs> That's really satisfying. But my favorite these days, since I'm mostly retired, is uh, uh, disguising myself as a lowly teleprompter operator mild-mannered teleprompter operator going on the set and watching all the newbie production companies uh, and watching all the newbies fail and go down in flames and me sitting back there going, hmm, I kind of knew that was going to happen, but hey, I kept my mouth shut. I'm just the teleprompter operator. <laughs> I am the cameraman. Yeah, the uh, I, I like the figuring out of, I mean, for me, because I do live, and I definitely prefer live, I, I will admit that as soon as you get me into a post environment, I'm like, oh, this is really tedious. <laughs> you know, like I just, Chris and I are a good match because I'm like, I'm all about the shoot. I pay a lot of attention to very small things on the shoot. Once I'm done, I'm like, who do we hand these files to? Like within a day, like, can I just get these out of, I don't want them around because if they're in my office, someone's going to ask me to do something with them. And it's funny because I came from post, but I do not like, I do not like 
noodling around with the stuff after I've shot it. I've shot it like, and, and I think part of it was, is that, you know, I did uh, about 2000 events in over about uh, six or seven years. And that's all, if you count that into the years, it's a lot of events. We would literally, uh, you know, focus on one event as soon as it wrapped. We'd say we'd, we'd have our, uh, you know, all the little pleasantries with the with the client. We talk about what what you know. We say it was great to work with you and blah blah blah. And then literally get in the car and boom, we're talking about the next show. <laughs> like, like like you know, and it was just and it was just and and and, and I never and you just get this you just and that show would just fade into the background, you know, and and didn't think about it again. Didn't you know like it just disappeared. If it was a big one, then we might go out you know that night or whatever and talk to the team and we do kind of an informal you know you know uh, post mortem. But but I think that um, I really like the fact that I just get in the car and go and that 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 show is now done. I'm now working on the next show. And the goal all the time was to take the lessons from the last show and put it into the next show or the next couple shows. You're trying to figure out how to and, – and for me, the, the thing that I get the most juice out of is how do people interact with each other? Like how do we make this – how do – you know, a lot of – you'll when I started, I would tell you a lot about how the tech worked. But now mostly I talk about how did everyone feel? How does the audience feel? How do the guests feel? How do the moderators feel? How do people feel when they're there? And and did I feel like they did I feel like they were, you know, at their at their highest potential as far as that goes? And you and they're never at that highest potential. So you're trying to figure out how you keep on closing that gap from feeling like they're that that, that was something that was really valuable to them. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, my other favorite moment is when you get a job from a client. And I get really excited and the crew is all excited. And then my business partner uh, whispers in my ear, okay, it's ours to lose now. That's my favorite part. <laughs> I, I, used to love, I, I used to love to get, um, there were a couple clients that did, didn't have any phone numbers. And, and so anytime it said unknown number, I was like, oh, this is going to be a good one. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, next, next question. It's from Funsak Dorje from Jaramsala, India. Uh, hi, panelists. Hope you all are keeping well. I'm in a dilemma as to which to buy between a Behringer XR18, Zoom F6, and MixPre6 for occasional interview panel and live streaming work. Go ahead, Chris. It's interesting. You're, you're naming three products in three different price categories, and they kind of do different things. So it's re really, when you're buying, in, if you're buying a recorder, buy the MixPre. If you're buying a mixer, okay, that's different. When I buy mixers, I tend to worry about outputs more so than inputs. Obviously, I have to have enough inputs, but I'm really more interested in what I'm getting with outputs and routing and internal stuff. Uh, we've been talking about MixPre a lot the last couple of weeks. Uh, the routing inside of MixPre is amazing. I'm sure the Behringer has similar buses and bears on my. The Zoom F6 is really just a simple recorder. Um, I've had a couple of Zoom F6s. Uh, they break a lot. I'll tell you that. Uh, we would just go, oh, that one's done. You go get another one, you know. Um, I think we had, a, I think at the old business, at the old office, we had like a drawer of broken Zoom recorders. Um, so think about those things, the outputs, and is it a recorder or a mixer that you really need? You go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I agree. The, um, the F6 and the uh, MixPre 6 are really designed as portable recorders to go in a bag. The uh, you know the Behringer is designed to you know go on a rack or be AC powered. The um, it depends on your budget. Like you said, the you know if you look at the prices, let's look at the prices right now. We got the a uh, thousand and six for the 
for the sound devices and about 649 for the F6. And I, I kind of disagree with you a little bit there. Uh, I have an F6, never had it broken. It's built like a tank. You can run a car over the top of it uh, and it would survive. It's out of cast aluminum case. Uh, and the uh, everything is very well protected on it. It has uh, all a lot of the features of the Mix Pre Six for half the price. Uh, so I think it's fairly well. The, the preamps aren't quite as good, but uh, you know if you're not uh, mixing really low level microphones together, uh, it it will work fine for you. Uh, so there's that, and it also the advantage that it does have, and I brought this up. Uh, embarrassingly yesterday for me uh, with Paul Isaacs yesterday the fact that the Mix Pre series just eats batteries so if you're doing a lot of portable work you have to have external batteries powering it because it won't last very long and the F6 goes all day on a, uh, a Sony lithium ion battery that clips on the back a single one so uh, you do a lot better there um, so it just depends on your, your operation and what you need uh, I, I the the Mix Pre 6 at the price that it's at is almost disposable. Like uh, Fenwick said, you know, you get another one out of the drawer if you have a problem with one. Uh, whereas the, you know, sound devices goes bad, you got to send it back to the factory or have it worked on and then you're down a thousand dollar piece of equipment. Next sorry, question. Somehow my window got got screwed up here. Um, Back the to only, you, Alex. I would say <laughs> if, if you do, yes. Yeah, I don't know why I did that with my window. Um, anyway, so uh, I would, if I'm doing mostly shows, I would do an XR18. If I'm doing mostly interview records and I have enough channels with the Mix Pre, I'd probably use the Mix Pre Six. Um, but but the um, but I I still think that because of the routing internally in the Mix Pre Six. If I was going to choose between the F6 and the Mix Pre 6 and I had the money, I'd probably use the Mix Pre 6. And if I could stretch, I'd get a Mix Pre 10. Um, but, uh, but if I'm doing a lot of shows, the XR18 is going to give you as more I.O. Uh, next question. And it's a question for me. Uh, just watched the making of the creator where they explain why they were used in a small Sony FX3 as a primary camera and how their shooting style influenced the VFX provided by ILM. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, for a while we were saying FX3 for a major motion picture. And uh, I watched the uh, on pay-per-view yesterday, and they had this really cool uh, making of. And the director, Garrett, and I can't recall his last name. Sorry, Garrett. Gareth. Uh, was, Edward, Gareth Edward, Edwards. Gareth. It's not Garrett. Okay, it's Gareth you. Edwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Gareth was explaining uh, why they went with an FX3. He was saying, when you get a movie and you want to get it greenlit, you always have this much left in there for uh, extras and things. So what we decided was, this is how much we were gonna spend to shoot the movie, and everything else was for all the uh, contingencies that we didn't, didn't plan on. The movie was shot all over Asia, I mean, beautiful locations, and uh, with a very small crew. So uh, they had made the determination that the FX3 made a lot of sense because it had to be very portable, had to be a pretty darn good uh, uh, visual um, imaging for them and under different conditions, low light, uh, bright lights, um, and uh, different uh, exterior locations. They used available light almost everywhere, uh, except in a few places. They had a, a carry around uh, light that they used as a uh, as a thing. But they just their comments about the FX3 were it's pretty darn good looking camera. Um, you can cut it against uh, the larger, more expensive Sony's if you need to. Has a little bit of grain in it, but they said that's okay because it made the uh, uh, the visuals look very filmic. And the folks at, um, at ILM commented that they're used to getting um, uh, plates 
that they have to do special effects with on big 360 stages with 360 uh, um, uh, CGI effects. And they didn't do any of that. They just had to superimpose robot heads on people's bodies. And they did it great. It was flawless and well done. But it was an exercise for the folks at ILM getting stuff done. I, I don't use, want to use the word in, on the cheap. But uh, the FX3 did a great job. And uh, the whole approach from Gareth was uh, quite impressive for a major motion picture like that. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I, um, I haven't seen the movie yet. I, I did get to see about 20 minutes of it because of some stuff I was doing. And, and um, I, will, uh, I will say it looks really good. Like it just, there's something really organic about it. And I, when I heard that he was shooting with an FX3, I was just like, that sounds crazy. Like FX6, I was kind of like, eh, okay. But you know, like why would, you know, and because and again, the camera, but I realized watching how they were using the camera, they're really bringing it down to a smaller footprint. It's not just the camera. It was the whole subsystem around it that was much cheaper and easier to do. But looking at the plates, I would have never known. Like it was, and, and I think that there is, you know, uh, there's an argument for doing as much practically as you can. You know, I think we get into this thing like, oh, we can just recreate the whole building, the whole city or the whole forest or whatever. And it doesn't actually look the same, you know? You know and, and I think that, uh, I think that what people are tiring of is, you know, we, we, you know, some directors are reacting and saying, well, we're not doing any effects and that's not, that's lying. Like, I just want to call it what it is. It's a bold faced lie. Uh, they, of course they're doing lots of visual effects. They're just spending the time and energy and money on making it right, you know, and doing the reference plates and everything else that they need to. And so it looks more real than it did before, but it's, it is, um, but, but I think that it's very, very hard to do and we don't see it done even on some of the biggest films. I mean, like Marvel has all kinds of problems with physics and, you know, um, you know, dirt and all kinds of other things that just don't feel like they're there or there correctly. And so, so I think that, you know, there is something very, very organic about it. And he's integrating these robots. And again, I got to see it uh, about 20 minutes of it. And I was just like, wow, this is, you know, I really want to see it. I just haven't had time to go to the theater. You know, go ahead, Courtney. I have seen it in the theater. Um, what do you think? Uh, it looks beautiful. It, uh, you know, I agree with you. It, it uh, ILM did a fantastic job of integrating the visual effects into the location shot footage. And I think they, they had a fixed number, amount of budget. And they said, well, where do we want to spend our money? And we want all these beautiful backgrounds. If we have to create them with visual effects, we're going to go over budget. Uh, but we can travel with a small crew. That's why they picked this camera, because they can go with a handheld gimbal instead of a techno crane or a, you know, a Fisher tin dolly and uh, all kinds of image stabilization and building building stuff out over the water to push the dolly across. They could just have a guy hand holding a gimbal and walk out into the water. There's a lot of stuff with water, and so uh, that's very difficult to simulate in uh, visual effects uh, realistically. And so uh, I think they saved their money on the uh, you know production when you're when you're not having to travel to six different countries with a sixty man crew, it saves you a whole lot of money in logistics. Uh, also, it's easier to get into a lot of those countries where they may flinch when you're bringing in sixty person crew into a uh, a beautiful tourist spot and you're taking it over for a week or something. You know, where you can if you can just go in with a seven person crew and grab that shot and be out in a day. That saves a lot of money, and it lets you shoot in a lot of locations where you couldn't logistically work a deal with those countries uh, to get in there. So I think it it came out with a good look. I wish they had spent a little more money on the script. Oh, <laughs> Oof. Right, go ahead, Mitchell. 
Yikes. Um, it was uh, it was very interesting because it didn't have that super polished look that a Marvel movie would. It looked like somebody shot nice pictures uh, all over the world. And uh, they have superimposed all this stuff or they manipulated it at ILM. I didn't see targets or people dancing around in uh, tight-fitting uh, electric targeted outfits to uh, simulate the robots. They just put it on regular people. Uh, that they met on on set, they were extras essentially. And uh, Courtney, to your point, uh, yes, uh, I saw Ronan Jib being uh, regularly used. Most of it, I think, was shot handheld. Yeah, and and that does, it, and also the the cameras are largely you know disposable, so you can do a lot of things that are very dangerous with them as well without thinking too much of it. We use crash cams for some of that stuff, but um, we use some of these cameras as crash cams, but but it's. Um, uh, but it, it does, you get more adventurous with them. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, has a question. A Blackmagic Design camera app now has four channels of mic in the menu. How might I add this to my workflow with ambisonic mics, for example, the Zoom H3 VR? Go ahead, Chris. I'm not an expert with ambisonic, but yeah, the, the software does have uh, four channels now. Um, and you can choose uh, from your audio source. I would imagine you can pick any uh, device that you plug in. I don't have the 15. I'm on the uh, only by even numbered iPhones scheduled right now. But I would love to see footage that has uh, an audio input device that can record four things into a clip. If somebody wants to send me a clip, I'd love to take a look at it. Yeah, I, I uh, should have recorded that last night. Um, anyway, Courtney? What you need to do, Fenwick, is get one of those old F6s out of the drawer because it supports ambisonics. It has so a, a USB-C audio output. Plug it into your iPhone and see if it works. I don't. Ha again, my iPhone doesn't take that thing. But I would like to. I would like to clarify something about that. The the F6 versus the H6. We did not buy the F6s. We broke a lot of the H6s. Oh well, the H6 is a consumer product, and the F6 is more for professional okay. stuff. Yeah. I just wanted to be big difference be between clear. the F series and the H series. Words yeah, matter. I, I think that the only thing that I I my I and I have a where is it? I have one sitting around. Um the H uh just ahead. Um anyway, I have an H6 or, or the H3 around here. I had one. I was just moving. I was just looking at it because um, I'm going to do some shooting with it. And um the H3 VR I don't know what the output is of that. Does it actually have four outputs? It's designed to record. So the way I'm using it is just to record out. Like I can listen to it binaural while I'm working on it, but it, it's just supposed to be just, I'm just using it as a record to the to the drive. So uh, the question is, is, if you hook it up via USB, do you get it? Does it show up as a device? Um, now, if you, if you go up to an Ambio, the Sennheiser Ambio, you'll have four mics and you'll have four outputs. And in that case, you could absolutely use some kind of interface like a mix or like a, like the F6 or the Mix Pre 6 um, to get those four inputs into it. Um, and uh, so, but I think that it would, uh, uh, but I don't know, I just don't know if there's four live outputs from from the Zoom H3. Uh, I have one, I did I did get one to do some testing, um, but I, I haven't, uh, haven't taken it through that pace yet. Next question. There's a QR code coming at you from Jason in London, UK. Alex mentioned KVM. Which ones are you using? I'm using a little what's called a P-Way. I mean, it's, I don't know if it has it. it it's, and, and what's funny is it says P-Way on it, but if you go to Amazon, 
it says something completely different. It's like, like, and it says you bought this, and I'm like, but I didn't buy it with that name. Uh, let me see if I can find it really quickly here. The um, so yeah, and there's nothing particularly. Uh, um, I don't know. I, there's nothing particularly great about it. The one thing that that I did have to be careful of is to be able to. Uh, like I got an eight port one that I wanted to put in, but somehow I can't figure out how to turn off the beeping every time you change the, uh, you know, every time you change it here. So let me see if I can show you this. Uh, let's see. So the one that I have here, and you can see that I've ordered it a couple times, is uh, this is the one that I'm using here. And so this is the little four channel. It says P-Way on the top, as you can see, but it says Grief Tech. KVM switch. So, um, so that's, you know, that's pretty much the, and it'll do video as well. So this will do, um, you have uh, audio and video. I, I, the one thing I was excited about the eight channel one was that it does, it has an RS-232 on it that I thought I could control, but I haven't been able to, uh, um, actually, uh, get it to not make noise, which is a problem. So, um, next question. Oh, sorry, Chris, Chris. Um, and I've mentioned this before, and Alex said, yeah, that looks stupid. Um, I use a thing. It's, it's not a KVM switch. It's just a, um, uh, a USB switcher. And so it allows me to plug four different... Um, I plug my keyboard in. How does this work? You plug your keyboard and mouse into to this, and then I, it has four outputs to four different computers. And then that, that little puck, uh, this guy right here, you put that on your desktop and I can tink, 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 toggle through all yeah. the active computers. And I, that's all I'm using and that's all, and that would work really well. The only thing that stopped me was I don't want to, I don't want to scroll through it. So yeah. I paid what I paid for it specifically so that I could push to the one that I want to get to. And it just, it was a couple extra things because I used this during a presentation. And so, and the reason I'm interested in RS-232 is I want to have a better interface for it as it is, you know, and so... I'll also say that this thing, it's ridiculously loud. Yeah, and again, the one that I, the eight channel one that I bought makes me this big no noise. Yeah, but that's the, the noise around it was the, the issue. I did get one like that and I was like, oh, I can't use this. So there you What's go. What's super confusing is I can switch the, contr the actual control, but because of keyboard continuity, I can also swipe my mouse across the computers. And sometimes I get to the edge of the computer and it's like, I can't get to the next computer, so I have to switch over to... The, it's absurdly ridiculous. You know, the continuity stuff, um, I kept on getting my... Like, I have so many computers that I just get lost. Like, I don't know where my mouse is. Like, it's somewhere. So I took I turned continuity off because I just... It would be... Because I have, I have monitors that are not always visible to me, you know, because they're in my switcher as well. And so I was like, my mouse would get into some place that I couldn't find it. So I so I was like, I need to, I need to not use that. That's just... Because I've got like eight... Mo I've got you know, five large monitors around the front, but I've got nine monitors plugged in. And so it can just get into a, a place that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not in front of me right now. So it's a very, very weird confusing. thing. But yeah, the P-Way or Grief, Grief Tech um, is the uh, the one that I use. And it's capable of 4K60. I kind of like the idea that I could put video into it, but I don't. Uh, next question. It's another QR code question coming to us from Jens Olson in Sagal, Idaho. How complete of an office hour setup can you create with the new iPhone 15? I'm getting, I'm working on that actually to test it, to figure out what could, could we send some send out to someone. Uh, one of the things that I started testing, um, this was a, it was actually a suggestion from somebody. 
Your Sony autofocus is This week out. on Spelunking with Alex Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was waiting for Chris to talk while I was doing you've it. Done, you've done more of this. Hold on, I got this over here on this show than a long time. Thank I know, well. Okay, it's, yeah, wait, it's down here. This is what I'm looking for. I got my wire strippers right here. Yeah, so uh, this is... Uh, this is the new test. Someone had suggested this, and now I can't find the name on it because um, I don't have the box. Um, but this is the new little headset. Oh, yeah, where you use the in-ear mold. So this is in-ear mold, this in-ear thing here, but there's a little boom on it. And then I have that going out to a, um, this is, I, you can, it's got, it goes into two, one is headphone, one is mic. And now what I did is it's got its own little adapter. This goes into the the TRRS um, here, and uh, but I use the I'm using the USB one, which is a little bit clearer. This is Audio Technic uh, Rode. I'm sorry, Rode makes this one that's a little. Uh, uh, let's see if I can get that to focus. Yeah, um, that Rode one is is this little converter here. It's like I don't know twenty bucks or something like that. Anyway, so um, so we're doing. I'm using this as a conversion. Uh, the mic is it's the best one we've plugged into a into a uh, i mean outside of like using a mix pre or something it's the best one we plugged into a phone um anyway so so this is this is working pretty well it's really sensitive I, here's the problem is i can use this because i know what i'm doing i don't know if i could send it out to a client because the mic is really sensitive to scratching you know you can if you hit it it'll hear it so you, you have to know what you're doing to to wear it um, so that along with a little light and you're, you could theoretically, I don't know if I could do office hours with it, but we'll try. I mean, I'll try to do it at some point, maybe in an after hours and we'll see if we can, if we like it. But I think that as far as a low, uh, low kit, the, this was, this, this mic was suggested a while ago. Um, and I can probably find the name of it. Um, but I think that for a remote kit, I think it's the best one that I've seen, uh, so far. This is the, um, Kumura, I can't remember. Somebody, thank you to whoever the whoever suggested it. Um, but this was the um, this is what I'm this is what I'm using here. Uh, is the uh, this is the Altion uh, Audio Kumura du Duo in ear headset. So it only shows one ear, but it's actually both ears. I don't know why it keeps on showing just one ear. Like it treats it like it's a, it's it's one ear, but you can see here it's two ears. The only problem with it is it is a little funky because they designed it exactly the way you see it here in this image, which is they designed it to be um, across the front, and it really works better across the back. Or I, uh, you don't want it across the front. That's silly. Um, so you, you, so it's a little bit cumbersome to put it behind you because it's just not built that way. But um, but it does work. Um, and uh, I, you know, I got this based on a request, uh, a question here in the show, and it works. You know really well it would be a totally acceptable mic for this kind of thing so as i build kind of a very i mean i am curious about building a very very light road kit um that i can use and this would be part of that road kit right now um, based on my experience so far um let's go to the next question tj worrell from minneapolis asking moving to a three-story house without internet uh, internal network wiring short term should i install a mesh wi-fi power line mesh or a power line Ethernet, best versus cost-effective. Long-term will be plenum-rated fiber through the cold air returns. Uh, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, for short-term, what I would do is uh, get you a nice, sturdy Cat6 Ethernet cable, run it out the window of the third story, drop it down to the first story, put one access point with a nice Wi-Fi 6, like a Nighthawk Nightgear, uh, Nighthawk, I mean a Netgear Nighthawk, 
and put it kind of up in the top of a closet somewhere on the bottom floor. And then on the top, get a oh, your last year's router, the one that you displaced to put the new Nighthawk in, and make that a second access point with a different SSID on the top floor. And the middle floor can be covered by either one or the other. That's how I handle it. And uh, I have Ethernet connection between the two. And it works pretty well. If I'm upstairs, I'll use the upstairs SSD. And if I'm downstairs, I'll use the downstairs SSD. In the middle, I can use either. Uh, so that would be a good uh, short-term solution for you. Probably wouldn't cost you much more than the, the price of that Ethernet cable. You're going to run outside the outside the window down to the bottom floor and it may look ugly for a month or two or until you get your regular network installed uh, but you could paint it and make it blend in with the outside of the house i have a mesh network it's a disaster it's just i haven't gotten around to to building it the mesh it's 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 horrible um so don't don't do mesh networks the, the latency is really bad and especially if you're doing anything like WebRTC. so any anything like zoom or anything else like that it's a just not good not good um so i would do uh, I would do. I would probably do what. What I'm still working on getting an install for uh, for where my wife sits for hers because um, because we kept on resisting that she's going to stay there, but it's now been two years. We might want to put an Ethernet board there, um, but we run an Ethernet cable from my office to where she is when she does shows uh, because the mesh network is not usable. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'm using uh, in addition to what I have my wired uh, Ethernet because I've put wires everywhere on two floors, by the way. Um, an Orbit uh, uh, Netgear uh, mesh network, and it's eh. Yeah, that's the problem, the eh. Uh, yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, and I, I, as far as power line Ethernet goes, I've tried that in the past and have had horrible luck with it. Of course, in my house, I've got a lot of Internet of Things and a lot of electronic devices and power supplies that aren't great that spew all kinds of trash that goes into the AC, uh, into the AC lines, and so power line Ethernet uh, competes with all that noise, and so I've found that to be not very well, you know, not very good either, and not very fast. It's definitely slower. Good, Chris. This has nothing to do with all the electronics, TJ, but I'm going to tell you this. Courtney mentioned you could paint the cable and make it look better. Take a sample of your paint at Home Depot. They can match stuff like crazy. I had to do it for my siding, which is a really old paint job. It's unbelievable what they do. They do some stuff, and they it's incredible. Matching paint colors digitally. Wow. Next question. And it's another QR code from my very, very good friend, Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina. If almost to spread holiday cheer to someone else... Uh, where would one find the best bundle of a MixPre 3 and Noise Assist? I mean, I think that there's a couple of places that you can buy it, whether it's Gotham Sound or True Audio or um, on oh, Location Sound in L.A. Um, they probably all could give you a bundle. That Those are the big three that I would probably call to do it. Um, I, you know that that are that are basically they're more more service oriented. They're not just straight retailers. So there's other there's other great ones like Full Compass and for and Sweetwater and B and H. I don't think they'll do the those would do the bundles for you and set it all up for you and send it to you. Um, but uh, but yeah, and <laughs> it's dangerous to say on the show. We're probably going to offload a couple at off at, at we, just because we have so many. Um, in um, so you should contact me as well because we're probably going to get rid of a couple of them um, from from what I know. So so uh, yeah, reach out to me and, and we'll see what we can do. Alex Lindsay's Black Friday sale this exactly. Friday. Well, we're, we've, we've got eleven of them and we haven't had more than five or six out at a time <laughs> since we got them. So so we were kind of like, well, we, we sell a couple of them. So anyway, so um, so let us know. We, we've got them all bundled together. Um, next question. 
Talalik Lopez Waterman in Pittsburgh, PA, has a question. Has anyone used Nomad Air as a solution for Internet in rural areas? Nomad Internet. Uh, now, I guess the question is, what does Nomad, uh, what does that mean? Um, I think I looked at that before. It's a point-to-point like point, uh, point point, uh, microwave connection, I think. Unlimited data. I can't. It Perhaps says that it's doing really well. Yeah, it's it's. Um, uh, I am just trying to figure out whether it's a satellite or whether it's cellular. Um, I can't quite. I, I'm just wondering whether it's bonded cellular. Is the is the question? It says because when it says like unlimited nationwide data, I kind of feel like there's uh, well. Tlaloc, I would I would love to have you um, do some testing uh, in, in uh, with that. <laughs> and if you and if you're in a bind, I've got a there's a if you're in a bind and you need wireless, um, I've got a Starlink that's only probably thirty miles from where you are right now. <laughs> so, so it's not being used. So so anyway, so I, so you can let me know about that too. See, see I'm I'm a full service provider today. I've got you just call me and I'll just I'll set you up. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. And if you if you've got questions, of course you can ask them anytime throughout the first or second hour. This is a uh, a two hour um, uh, or up to two hour uh, Q and A session. So um, uh, you can go in and you can use askofficehours.global. 24-7. I look seven or eight questions today uh, that just came in from the QR code. So every day we're getting more of them. And so, uh, so but if you want to use that, uh, you can use that any time of the day that just comes to your head that you have a question or comment, uh, askofficehours.global. You can throw it in there and then we'll feed it into the system. Uh, um, or if you're in McConnell, of course, ask those questions and make sure to vote on the questions so we know which ones to answer next. Next question. And here's another one of those aforementioned QR codes coming from Wes Decker in Fort Worth, Texas. I ran across Apple's preliminary documentation for how they're using HEVC to record and playback spatial video to iOS 17.2 and Vision OS and thought it would be helpful to share this link. Yeah, this is a great link. Uh, I'm sure it'll go into the chat. Uh, this is under the developer.apple.com. It's, it's slash AV Foundation slash HEVC um, stereo video profile.pdf. Um, so that's what you want to look for, but it, we'll put it in the chat uh, that's there. Also look at the, uh, about the same time Apple put out, you know, all the WWDC, vid and they have some videos about it as well, which are actually pretty good. So I would watch the videos and read this document. Uh, next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona, building a kit for a podcast, uh, The Travels on a University Lean Budget, Video and Audio. Where would you spend your money? Uh, I, I would spend it on the, on, on the recorder and the mics. <laughs> like, like that's like, if you, if you're really thinking about a podcast, uh, you know, video and audio, um, you know, the first place that I would do it is I'd have a recorder. I'd look at how many, you know, getting something like an F6 or a mix pre six, uh, are probably, those are the, the two things that I would look at first, then the mics. What's really, if you're, um, it depends on like what you're, where you're going. Can you set those mics down? Can you hold, do people need to hold them? If they need to hold them, the ones that we've really leaned into and the least expensive, most durable ones, of course, are the SM58s. So, you know, we've, I've definitely gone out with a pack of, you know, six FM, uh, SM58s and a, and back in the, when I was doing a lot of podcasting, I mean, I know this will sound like overkill, but we didn't have all these other, other ones available, but I had a 788 with a bunch of, a bunch of SM58s that were all in a little box. <laughs> I could just pull them out and do a podcast. And so, um, so I think that, 
Uh, nowadays, of course, there's le- there's more cost-effective ways to do that, but the SM58s are pretty surefire as far as just having something that you can use. You know, and, and it sounds like you're on the road, so that might be the most useful as far as of doing that. If you have if you have the ability to, um, you know, have mic stands and you're going to sit around tables and so on and so forth, I will say that I, um, I the the PR40s are have better headroom, you know, for those. Uh, another thing you could do, of course, is is the, living a little bit more on the edge, but definitely doable is potentially doing something with a laptop and a you know bunch of MV7s and so on and so forth. The reason we get MV7s is because we have USB in them and XLR. Um, but if you commit to XLR and you know that you're going to go into a recorder, you can get you know better mics. So the PR40 again is is one that we've used a lot for that. Make, just make sure to get the little there's a little windscreen that you can buy from BSW. Uh, I don't think Heil makes it, but BSW makes it that goes on the end. Um, that uh, is is really important for those uh, PR40s. Um, and then you know I think that the next thing I would do obviously if you're going to get you know get cameras, one of the things that that I have experimented with fairly successfully for for these is to use those little link cameras. They're tiny. You can put them on little light stands or or little arms, and they're PTZs, and so you can kind of frame everybody up, and you can fit a bunch of them in your backpack. So, I mean, what I'm talking about right there with a bunch of SM58s, um, a uh, recorder like a Mix Pre Six and or or an F6, a um, the the links. Those are all going to fit. Like everything I'm talking about, even with a laptop, it's going to fit into a you know 1510. You know, it's it's going to be, you know, it's really like a little podcast kit that would get you a pretty good show, I, I'd say. So that, those are the things I think about. Uh, next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. John Preto's been up to anything interesting. What interests you today or this week? Mr. Preto? No, I've been out of the loop. I was, I'm having some health issues here that I'm battling. And so I've been, I've been completely out of the loop here. I'm watching... I'm watching really closely what's going on with OpenAI and their chat GPTs. Um, there's some there's some really interesting things that's going uh going on in that regard. And so I'm 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 watching the AI world. Uh that's my primary focus. Did you are you watching uh, what I didn't quite grok what was going on with so um with uh Copilot with Microsoft. It's really letting you build kind of codeless custom chat GPTs. Did you I only read it kind of going by. Did you see anything about that, John? I didn't. I didn't see anything specific to Copilot that's not already integrated into GitHub uh, for a fee, which is super, super popular. It's one of their most popular applications. GPTs is their new application that they announced last week, right? So, creating your own GPTs based upon your own corpus of data. In fact, uh, Leo Laporte on this week in Google. Did a really good inter- overview of GPTs with that with that group of people. I, I've never watched that show before. It came on like two in the morning. I watched it. it; was pretty good. So I suggest you you go watch that episode. Next question, Brian Washington from uh, Washington. Excuse me, Brian from Washington D.C. Uh, submits this QR code question: Is it possible, preferable, even advisable for a federal government agency? to have its YouTube channel whitelisted to avoid music copyright strikes during a live stream. Good, Courtney. Uh, that's a touchy situation because usually .gov uh, websites are in public domain uh, because it's by the government, so they're not copyrighted. And if they were to use copyrighted music on that .gov live stream or .gov public domain, they'd be in trouble probably with the copyright holders. So I think they would probably... 
uh, shy away from even using any copyright uh, copyrighted material as uh, as music. They would use have to use some type of op open source or license free music uh, to back their uh, .gov uh, websites and live streams. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the music service I use, they want to know what's your YouTube account number so that they can, uh, I guess, uh, uh, fix any uh, complaints that might come in or hits or strikes. Uh, but so far, I haven't had any problems with a job I just recently did. So I don't know where you put that. If they give you a code, do you put that in the description category? No, you um, you don't need to put it anywhere. They have to go back into your CM. They, they have a CMS that they go back into, and then they identify either your channel or they identify your pro. You know the, the the video that's going to be there to say this is okay to play this content to here. But that's a control system that they have on their end. You don't have to do anything on your end other than they have to know where to go um, for that kind of stuff. It is it's it's a process, you know, and usually the way government agencies do this is they have a partner, a private partner that is going to do the work, do the legwork of that because getting the contracts through the government agency is so onerous oftentimes that it'll take too long to get through that side of it. I mean, that's that's been my experience so far. Um, go ahead, Mitchell. I haven't done this in a while and uh, I did it yesterday for a client. Um, and you can, uh, you can put use YouTube Studio to submit your video and as it compiles and checks it, it checks it for a copyright strike and it says uh, copyright is a-okay, can they come back later and say, well, all of a sudden it isn't? No, no, it's not. I mean, you can always test, you can take a video and play it out and it'll say it's okay. A lot of times it'll say, hey, you're gonna get a copyright flag. If you're not monetizing, most of the government is not monetizing it. If you're not monetizing it, the flag doesn't matter. So you just kind of go, sure, <laughs> you can flag me all you want. What you're looking for is trying to avoid a strike. You don't want a copyright strike because you get three of them. I mean, I, I haven't done it long, recently, but my what it used to be is if you get three of them within um, six months, you will uh, lose the ability to live stream or post, I think. So so it's important for you to not, not do that. Um, and again, I think that the, you know, usually we've worked with, often, sometimes I've been the company that, they, that a government agency worked with to do this. And so we go out and get you know, work through those things through a partner as opposed to the agency itself trying to figure it out. But it, it can be done. Um, uh, but 99% of the time, if we're streaming to something that's a government agency, uh, we are um, not um, we are not using copyrighted material. Like we, we really try to avoid that, um, like the plague um, in, in YouTube. It's just every time you start, I'm going to put some copyrighted material in, into, my, into my show. It's just so much work. And I, and I don't know if the, I don't know if the, there's ROI there. Um, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado is back. What is going on with the drone regulation and the FAA? How might regulation influence drone buying choices? Good, Courtney. Well, because uh, if you buy a drone that weighs more than 250 grams, I think it is, uh, you have to uh, register it. And it has to have, as of September of this year... Uh, there's something called remote ID that the drones have to be equipped with uh, that broadcast the owner's name and the drone ID number looking like a digital kind of like a transmitted license plate so that the FAA can monitor when they find a drone flying uh, in an unsafe manner. Uh, anyone can receive that uh, remote ID and turn them in to the FAA and they can then pursue the owner. 
and uh, and or ground your drone or prevent you from flying anymore. So you got to be careful about that. And I think this is required of all drones over that weight limit. Um, so uh, look into if you're buying a, a drone that weighs more than that, make sure it's equipped with remote ID. Otherwise, you may not be able to fly it these days uh, over any population. This also makes a difference. If you want to fly over uh, populated areas with people in it, you have to have a drone with remote ID on it now. So that's all I know about it. There's this thing going on in Ukraine. Uh, you may have noticed in the news. Uh, expect the regulations to get much tighter because of that. Because it's just, um, you know, there's this giant, truly an arms race of weaponizing drones. And weaponizing drones means that that all drones become more dangerous because a lot of what you're seeing in Ukraine is taking commercially available drones, DJIs, and, you know, putting bombs on them, you know, and, and we all talked about that and worried about that a little bit as, as it got going. Like eventually this is a great delivery system, you know, and they've turned it into a great delivery system. And so uh, you can expect it to be, you know, get more and more uh, tight for drones. Um, I think that, you, you know, I think that if you go through all the hoops, you'll still be able to fly it. Um, you know, people get licenses to fly planes. Um, and so, so I think that there, so I think you, that'll continue to happen, but it is going to be the, the, the wild, wild west days of drone ownership is probably over. Uh, next question. Next one from Chris. It's a QR code. Uh, Chris is from Washington, by the by the way. Recommendations for a mic to capture children singing in a room where space is limited and would have to be placed about 12 feet away. And there's a, a link uh, to the location. Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm thinking a Sennheiser 416 uh, pointed pointed at them on a boom. Going to get a little bit of that side uh, mount uh, sound problems that you're going to get with uh, room tone. Yeah, if you look at the video, though, it's a pretty wide group of kids. Like, it's, it is, I think it would be hard to have something that directional. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I didn't look at the, the picture, but if the kids are in a semicircle or something, then a, a directional mic like a 416 might be a problem for you. Uh, and if they're in a circle, uh, definitely will be a problem for you. So you might go with a, a, an omnidirectional microphone or at least a cardioid microphone. Uh, and point it in the direction of the kids. If I would try and get it equidistant from as many kids as you can. So if yeah. you put it overhead, try and mount it in such a fashion that where, however the kids are distributed, you're equidistant from the furthest that are away from the microphone. Yeah, the, um, uh, now uh, Mickey suggests a uh, Sheps uh, CMC 641, and uh, Ro Robert uh, Linkrum uh, suggests a uh, PCC 160 from Crown. So those are some other suggestions there from the uh, uh, from from our um, remote panel. <laughs> in there, so uh, so those are some other other options to think about there. Uh, next question: Michael Ball from San Francisco, California, is asking. I want to auto trigger record on my Mixpre 3 at the time as my ATEM camera, etc. What might work? Uh, is there a way to send time code out of an ATEM ME2 to the micro HDMI on the Mixpre? I'm not ready to buy a time code generator. Is there a is there a micro micro uh, a micro HDMI in on the Mixpre? Is there is there a micro HDMI on a Mixpre, Mixpre that I didn't know about? No, I don't think so. Okay, I, I think it's for programming from what I've seen. They're not an HDMI, micro HDMI. No, there's a micro USB. There's a USB C. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oh no, there's a micro time code in. <laughs> so there is a micro. So there's a new thing that we we had a whole mix pre show and uh, and I didn't uh, I didn't get that in there. So um, there is a uh, yeah. There's an HDMI. If, if you look on the uh, the second side of this, let's see if I can hide. This is the problem with this autofocus. Is it really wants to focus my face? Eh, can't do it. It just it's just like no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, uh, so anyway, um, yeah. So it's there. Uh, that's the way, that I, I don't know whether that will take the signal from the ATEM and know what to do with that. Um, but, uh, but it, it is the micro, the, you would, you, the only reason that micro HDMI exists is to do time code in, you know, so, uh, or, and to get, get, to get the HDMI flag. And, and we looked at it yesterday. There is an HDMI flag, um, that goes out on the HDMI. I'm, I just haven't tried to do it with the ATEM and whether that would actually, um, work. Um, so, so I don't, I don't know if it works with the ATEM. I do know it would work with a camera. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, can't hear you, Courtney. Sorry. Sometimes the mouse button works. <laughs> uh, I think the auto roll on the, uh, on the, uh, auto roll on the mixed pre's has to do with seeing moving time code. So, uh, the ATEM's always putting out continuous running time code. So it'd be always rolling. Uh, it's designed to detect if you have several of these hooked together, you could uh, have uh, a time code source like a camera. So whenever the camera rolls, it generates time code and it auto rolls all the recorders at the same time. Uh, so it's looking for changing time code to trigger the records. I, since the ATEM, I don't think is going to do start stop time code output. I think it's just going to do continuous time code out. Next question. David Brady in New York, New York, with a question. Building out a new AV production rack based around a 40 by 40 router. How should it be wired up? Should there be a normalized patch panel behind it? If so, are there any in multiples of 10? Or should I simply home run the last eight? Uh, Canary 32 MDST 2 by 32. Um, you know, so the, 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 I use non-normal. <laughs> so I know that sounds nutty. Um, but I use, I, there's, um, you know, there's normal, but I use non-normal. So the difference between these and the patch panels, a patch panel is something that you sit on the back and you can patch stuff in. And the way a normal works is it has a signal going through it. If you punch into it, it, it will, um, it will take over that signal. So if you, and this is the reason you do this is to extend the, extend the, the, the scalability of your router. So you may have a router that's 40 by 40, but you may put a patch panel on the back that has you know, a ton of I.O. So you can plug a bunch of things in and you repatch it on the back so that you can, uh, and you see these in trucks all the time and we have them in our racks. And so that way you can hard, and the other advantage of that is you can hard, if the, for some reason the router goes down, you can hard patch oftentimes around it to get to things. So there's a bunch of advantages to having patch panels. Um, you don't think it, I didn't know what to do with patch panels when I first found out about them. And now I feel like every major production should have one. <laughs> you know, like that, that's a, not one that you come in, not a remote production that you walk in, but every one that, you know, if you're building a control room, you need to have a patch panel. I prefer um, Bittree non-normal 12Gs. So, um, so those are, uh, they have pins and you're looping, you get loops for each one of those. And the reason for that is, and, and it just depends on what your use case is. I don't ever want to pull something out of a patch panel and have another video. Like if, if I pull something out of the patch panel, I want no video like coming out of that. So that's, that's my, um, and, and I know that that takes, what I'm creating is extra work. 
but man, I've had some bad experiences with that. You know, like, a, a, and, and, I, and I know that I'm doing it in a very, very odd way. Um, so I know that I'm not, I'm not normal <laughs> for, for doing it that way. But I like, like when we do, when we have broadcasts, we've done really large broadcasts and we'll have all the outputs to the truck and the switch and, you know, a bunch of other things all at the end. And there are all these red little pins. There are little loops, these red loops that are there. And when I pull those loops out, it means no signals leaving the building. Like, so we can do rehearsal, pull all those pins out and I don't have to worry about it. Um, uh, so anyway, so the, but that's, but that's why I do it is I don't want, I don't want it to be accidental. Um, you know, I don't want to have anybody accidentally, uh, do stuff there. That's the issue. And, and again, most people use normal, normal, uh, ones. I just, um, I've had situations where people lose jobs because they pulled the pin out of a normal panel. <laughs> so anyway, next question. Funsak Dorji from Dharamsala, India, India asking, hi panelists, can you recommend a USB device that outputs four HDMI displays for my H2R graphics machine, Windows? Thanks. Go ahead, Courtney. Um, well, yeah, there you can go. Normally, Windows only supports um, uh, or uh, the Intel chipset more more accurately. With its onboard graphics, only supports three uh, HDMI outputs. However, you can go with virtual output over the USB and these pluggables, which are available uh, using the uh, pluggable driver, which converts uh, USB-C or USB-A to multiple, usually two, uh, HDMI outputs. You can get those for about 40 bucks. You could plug that into your H, your USB-C or USB-A connector and add two to your existing two that are probably out on your, depending upon your, what your graphics machine is. Or you could get, uh, you could get one of these that has, uh, this is a little micro GL GR9, I think you can find them online in China and on Amazon that, um, uh, are certainly fast enough. This one comes with 16 gigabytes of RAM built in and uh, NVMe, a tiny NVMe drive that can go up to a terabyte. And it has two uh, HDMI. It has uh, three HDMI outputs. Then you could plug the pluggable into a USB adapter and add two more. Also has two gigabit Ethernet ports and is uh, tiny and cost about $179. So that's a, a budget way to get multiple outputs to do HDR... Uh, H2R graphics, which are not really uh, processor intensive, it should run fine. And and the um, uh, you know you might because you said your graphics machine instead of a graphics laptop, there's a chance that you may be using an actual machine that's there that may have cards. You could you can put in things like a NVIDIA Quadra M2000 card into it, and you get four Display Ports out. Then you just get adapters or or display port to HDMI out from there. So you can add cards. If your machine is not a laptop, you could put a card in that would do four out. And that might be more stable. Um, next question. Danny Grizzle from Longview, Texas. What is after hours and where is it located? Office hours is like a mist world and needs a map. Uh, it doesn't, you know, we, we, we like making it a little hard. <laughs> so anyway, it's, 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 it's an adventure. Um, so, uh, after hours is something, if you're, if you are getting our email, you'll see a link near the bottom that is a link to joining after hours. It's another zoom. 
it runs 24 seven and uh, people, you know, a lot of times you'll go in there and there's a whole bunch of just names and you won't hear anything. But if you start asking questions, oftentimes people will turn their cameras on and start talking. And so it's just a place that we can do what we're doing here 24 seven in a little bit more of an informal way. Um, and so it started off as like a pre-show and post-show and then it became just 24 seven after hours. And so, um, so it's there, uh, you can, if you don't get our email, you can go to um, officehours.global slash join and uh, you can sign up for the email and you'll get an email that tells you what's going on every day but it'll it'll tell you how to join discord which is another place you might want to be it'll also show you how to join after hours where you can sit and chat with fo other folks uh any time of the day go ahead mitchell it truly is a magical place uh danny um i had a client who was doing an edit and i couldn't figure out how to do something and i said hold on just a second i went over logged into after hours and I said, hey, I can't do this. And two people popped in, said, oh, do this, this, and this. And the client turned to me and said, who are those guys? So if you want to be one of those guys, Alex, just explain how to get there. It truly is the, uh, it's uh, the ultimate uh, open office because oh, the problem with open office is that there's people around you all the time. The advantage of open office is there's people around you all the time. So what 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 after hours oftentimes is is there's people around and you can you can go in and hang out with them a little bit around the water cooler, um, ask questions, you know, uh, brainstorm. But you can turn it off anytime you want. You can turn off your video and just listen to them. You can turn off everything and not listen to them and not be there and be able to focus on what you're doing. So it has all the advantages of the open office, but without some of the disadvantages um, by being virtual. So um, so anyway, so I it's it's pretty fun. Um, next question. Next one in from Talalek Lopez Waterman in Pittsburgh, PA. John, can you give us a quick Garage Rocketeers update? Go ahead, John. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we had our, our one of two big launches here last week. Sorry, last month, October. Um, and I met a couple of good guys out there. We lost one of our sponsors. Uh, we still have the other one there. So we have parts. We have parts sitting on a shelf right now, but I found a guy that will actually make us a motor and save us about 15 grand in cost. So that was the big breakthrough on, on that. So that was a huge win for us. And so the so the rocket continues. It's the Nova payloader. It's the SD's 1961 Nova payloader, 12X upscale. Right now it's scheduled for October. And we do have we do have uh mission patches available as well. So uh, we'll put those up on the website here within the next couple months or so. Now, is there is there a uh, is there a, a launch? Are there, they're not doing any kind of launches in March. Isn't the big one in March that, that's in Vegas? March and October are, the, are similar size. Oh, got it, got it. And they're both in the same place in the desert. Exactly the same place. Mm, very and we good. had about 150 people out there in October. It was nice. The weather was great. We yeah. had several big launches out there. It was a good time. Yeah, and and when is it in March? March, mid-March. So it's usually around the 17th, 18th, right in there. Got it. It'd be fun to go, I think it'd be fun to go shoot and just see, like, because I, I haven't been there. Not so much for yours, just to kind of get a sense of it and then come back in in, in, in October and do something. Mid-March. Yeah, okay. Okay, we'll, we'll think about that. Uh, next question. And another question coming in on our QR code network, Abe Barrera from Flowery Branch. What's your opinion on Twit TV regarding Leo? talking about how Twit isn't getting enough advertising money, and will Twit be able to continue for long, or will they have to change the way they work? Go ahead, Courtney. I don't like it. He's tried to do this before. Uh, a couple of years ago, he had some serious problems with stalkers, and he decided uh, 
uh, Leo decided to take all the live stuff off the air and just tape, uh, you know, in uh, tape the stuff and then post it on YouTube. Uh, but then he quickly realized there was such an, an influx of uh, uh, people that were dissatisfied with this because of the chat room, the live chat room uh, that he would have up on each show participates in each show and the only way to do that is over a live broadcast and you lose that community completely cut them off completely and uh there was such an uproar about it uh, they had to go back to live broadcasts again very quickly i think it lasted only a few days this time uh i don't know what the purpose is i guess to earn more money maybe he should take one less uh, vacation a year he does tend to take a large number of vacations but uh i think you can i discovered you can uh watch the live stream kind of on youtube when the show is being made but it's not on live.twit.tv it's not on their network it is on their youtube channel uh, and so you can watch it live if you want to without paying the $7 a month, which is the their um, particular streaming option. I mean, their subscription option for members of their Discord channel. Uh, and the, But the a point of the Discord channel of paying that $7 is to get the shows without commercials in them. So well, I don't point know that you how have. moving to that, that model will get them, you know, if they'll make enough money, make up enough money off the subs additional subscriptions to cover the amount of advertising that they will no longer be able to get because they're not exposed to as many viewers by not having that live stream. Yeah. I mean, the, the number of viewers versus the number of, of, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what I can and can't say about the numbers, but the number of live viewers is about uh, one thousandth the number of of downloads, so it's somewhere between one thousandth and fi one five hundredth of the number. So the number is a pretty small number of people who are watching the live version, but it does add energy, and they do create a lot of of uh, you know they're vocal. So so I think that that's why they have a lot of attention paid to them there. Uh, Club Twit has a lot of other things. They're having extra interviews and extra shows, and they 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 do a lot of work. So it's not if if all you're trying to do is get no commercials, it's probably still worth it. I mean, I, I don't you know to not listen to commercials, but but there's other features that they that, and they're focusing more and more on those other features that are for Club Twit because the advertising market's really difficult. You know, right now for a lot of podcasters, not just for not just for Twit. So you know, I think that uh, you know it'll be interesting to see. I think uh, that. Twit could do a lot of what we're doing, what we figured out how to do relatively effectively. In fact, I probably ought to send Leo the design for what we're doing here. <laughs> so, because he, he doesn't need to be, he doesn't need a big office to, to do what he's, what we're doing. Um, and I don't know if, I don't know if it would change that dramatically. He'd still have, you know, he'd still have people doing all of those things, but he might not have the overhead. I mean, the problem is they've got a longer lease, I think. Anyway, go ahead, Courtney. And one thing you may may not realize is there, you know, if you're watching on YouTube, I for years have a YouTube viewer that allows, that skips over the commercials automatically. And um, so, you know. Oh, aren't, aren't they reaching out to you? I think YouTube is, is working on closing that that gap. Well, they, you know, you can't load, the, you won't find those apps on the, uh, on the Google store or no, on the I, iPhone store. You have to sideload them. And so they're trying to shut down sideloading as best they can. And I yeah. think Fire TV is, has moved. Right now, those apps run on Fire TV and Google TV uh, by sideloading. Amazon is changing their operating system to avoid sideloading. So we'll see what happens there. But um, yeah, yeah, you can do that. And... So I don't know. Uh, it it 
depends on how many people are watching on those types of things on YouTube that wouldn't need to pay for the extra material you get on their uh, on their Twit network, right. uh, their pay-per-view. Next question. And it's a question coming in from London, UK, from David. Uh, David asks, could you suggest a portable TV monitor suitable for on-location events and conferences to use with an ATEM Extreme ISO? Uh, it just depends on what you're, you know, the, the question really uh, for on location uh, portable TV monitor, I guess the question is, are you, are, are you, for the ATEM, you just need a, any kind of computer monitor. And what I tend to use are these Dell 24 inch ones. Um, I attach those. I usually have two of them and I attach them to a, uh, I'm using extreme, let's see. Yeah. I, extreme ISO. So what I, what I would take there is Amazon makes these, Amazon basics makes these two arms. They're about 250 bucks. It's a two-arm system that attaches to your table. Um, and so you attach it to the table. You have the two arms. You put two 24-inch monitors up there. You, you can swing them around wherever you want them. And that works pretty well. And you get the two HDMI outputs from there. Uh, if you're streaming, um, if you do need to use that that HDMI for something else, you might need it to run it into some kind of distro or, or uh, you know, and this is where you might use a 4 by 4 matrix or a 8 by 8 matrix. I have an 8 by 8 matrix right in front of me here that I use to reroute monitors a lot. Um, and that's a Blackbird makes it. It's a, it's a, you know, uh, mono price that makes Blackbird. Um, and so anyway, so those are things that you might want to think about there. Go ahead, Courtney. Sorry, I was doing a little unboxing. While I was there you go. We're very <laughs> informal today. Yeah, we, we yeah. Uh, yeah. I, missed, I missed the top monitors. of the hour transition. I realized, I looked up, I was like, what happened to the top of the hour transition? It must have happened while I was not paying. I was ready for it, ready for it, ready for it, and then got into an answer and forgot about it. Um, go ahead, go, Courtney. I'd tell you the name of this, but it comes in a box that says portable monitor. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's Chinese. These are about, uh, and these are actually pretty good. They're uh, IPS 15-inch uh, monitors. This was a, uh, sorry, I'm blocking my microphone, a Hongo. Yes, Hongo. There it is. A 15-inch IPS monitor. It has a mini HDMI in and a USB-C in. And it can receive um, uh, video over USB-C. But I use mine. I use one just like this for my, the output of my ATEM uh, with HDMI in. It has a micro HDMI in, so you just, or mini HDMI in. So you just get a mini HDMI to full-size HDMI cable and plug it right in. And then a USB-C power supply, which it, it comes with a little wall ward power supply to plug it into power. And it's portable. It uh, folds flat. has a nice little cover that works as a stand. And they're about 150, 125 to 150 bucks somewhere in that neighborhood. Next question. Next one in is a QR code from Jerry Forschler from Harrisonville, Missouri. I rarely miss office hours while making home deliveries. I don't like to mix brands of PTZ cameras. I use three Bird Dog Eyes P200s with PTZ Optics Super Joy joystick controller to stream football and baseball and experience mixing brands. Yeah, the real problem with mixing brands is you're mixing color science. And so the the, the challenge you're going to have, I mean, some of it's going to be a little bit of the interface, but the interface might be able to use Visca and control many different um, uh, different PTZs on its own. But the real challenge that you dig yourself into is that the each the color of each one of these is slightly different and the way that they manage color is slightly different. And so it's very hard to match color on these cameras if you use multiple, and sometimes even multiple models, 
And then also multiple lenses, you know, lens types. So if you use a 24 to 70 on one and a one to 100 to 400 on another, you're actually going to, there, there's going to be different versions of blue that are added to that um, based on the filtering and the, and the lenses in, in general. So, um, but you really start to get into that problem if you start mixing and matching a bird dog with a Sony, with a Panasonic, with a, now, if you really dig into those, um, I, I don't know who, I think Sony makes the bird dog chips. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but you know, you, you can get into like who makes the chip for that camera and you may be able to get a little closer. Um, the best way to handle this is, um, you take the one with the least amount of control. This is well, the first way to handle this. You take the, the, whatever PTZ is, you have the least amount of control over color. You get that one of the way you like it. And then you, the ones that have better controls go after that and have to match that you basically have to go to the lowest common denominator. The other way to do it that's far more refined but does take a lot more work is to get little LUT boxes. And so um, you can have, bo there's boxes that Blackmagic makes for a couple, a hundred dollars or something like that, that are, that just happen to have a LUT, you can load a LUT into the box. And I can't remember which ones do it and which ones don't now. It's not something that, they don't call it a LUT box. Um, AJA makes a more expensive one called a color box, which is a really high-end version of this. But you can add LUTs, I think 33-point LUTs to these little boxes. And so what you can do is then take the cameras, you shoot a, a chart, you take them into, into, you take that chart into resolve, you take the first camera and you, or the second camera and you put it over top of the first one, you set that top layer to difference and you'll see what the difference is between the two of them. You tweak all of that and you load a LUT and you put that LUT in, into the box, but you have to make sure that the box matches the camera and it's a little bit of a wor work, but you can get them to be very, very close that way. They're not going to be perfect, but that's the way to do it. And that's going to take you a couple of days. <laughs> like, just to be clear, like it's going to take you a couple of days to get it done. Once it's done, they should just match up. Um, but uh, but we've done that uh, only, we've generally done that only to incorporate non-Black Magic cameras with a Black Magic pipeline um, where we need to match our cameras um, back in. So that's, so we haven't done it with all the cameras, but we've done it with one or two here and there and putting those LUTs in and it's worked pretty well. Um, next question. Chester Sweeney from Las Vegas, Nevada, drops a QR code question. If I did 3D print new frames from my glasses that I used to read, how can I measure lens to frame for perfect fit? Go ahead, Courtney. A, I don't know why you'd want to do this because, you know, reading glasses, you can get like like my wonderful ones here that I paid, you know, all of about $4 for, uh, come with frames. <laughs> <laughs> and why you would want to 3D print some frames. The problem with lenses is everyone is shaped slightly differently. You know, I mean, they're the same on left and right eye, but they're opposite shape of each other. So you'd have to take that into account. You know, maybe there's a way you could scan it in, but it, it'd be a lot more trouble than it's worth. I'm not sure why you would want to print 3D frames instead of using the frames that come with most glasses. Uh, I don't know glasses that come without frames other than he's got big plans and he's got big plans he's got big plans for 3d these, uh, yeah. i mean if you're going to do normal ones if you're just trying to replace the ones you already have i wouldn't do that because frames are so inexpensive that you just buy new ones it's not worth the work if you're going to do something crazy and you just want it to fit into the same lenses what you can do is take the lenses out of the camera cover them with um something that you can wipe off so a dust you can get these little things that you can put dust on them you can put other things, then you can actually, if you put them on a graft paper, we had actually, obviously I had to do this once. Um, you put them on a, pa pa a piece of paper that has a known set of, uh, 
of, of uh, um, squares. So the squares can be one centimeter or whatever it is. Um, and then you take a lot of photos of them and you can build photogrammetry that will help you build that, let, re remodel that lens. You can model it based on the photogrammetry and you can scale it based on those, those reference points. And a lot of times we'll set a, 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 a measuring stick down next to it. So we really get down to the millimeter of knowing what that is. Once you have that 3D model of your lens, you can now build your 3D model, the 3D model you're going to print around that lens. Um, it may not be perfect, um, but it's we've definitely done it where we've had to match things up with those with pieces. And I don't, I didn't try to read through them, but uh, but for uh, prop, they worked fine. Uh, go ahead, Cor Courtney. Yeah, I don't know if the photogrammetry is going to work since most lenses are obviously curved. So that's actually why you want to use. That's why you want to use the flat onto that graph paper. So I don't know how accurate it, that would be. Uh, it 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 is um, because the, the a lot of it, it the point there's points of it that are sitting flat against it. You don't if you do it on the cur so you're taking side. multiple multiple photographs from oh, different yeah. angles to, to do your photogrammetry. You know? Yeah, I mean, like for that one, we want hundreds, but for that for the one that we did there, it's probably eighty or ninety photos. Uh, you know, to, 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 to build it. And the key was the sp there was a spray on that was, it wasn't dust, but it was like a spray on that we could wipe off. Like it, yeah. it, it created a film. Uh, the problem, the reason you have to do that is you have to get rid of the reflections on the, on the, uh, the glass, um, that screws up the photogrammetry. So you need a flat, per, you know, a flat piece. And per, per, in a, what's interesting is you don't want it to be perfectly smooth. You want it to be kind of textured because that's what the photogrammetry uses to grab it. The, the other way to do that is also, if you're using um, uh, MetaShape, you can put little, uh, there's little codes that you can print out and you put them on there and that, that helps, you can actually register the cameras based on those, on what basically what are kind of like QR codes that are around it so that you don't have to, um, you can register those cameras and so you don't have to use the, the lens itself to register them. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, just to be clear, we're not talking about camera lenses, we're talking about eyeglasses. So don't go yeah, monkey do with your lenses. Can't do this with the lenses. Uh, and again, we did it as a prop. We did not do it as a, I didn't try to read with them. I don't, I don't know if it has that level of accuracy. Uh, next question. And it's from David Brady in New York, New York. To Alex's point of stray mouse pointers, are there any mouse managers, Windows or Mac, that can be used in conjunction with Synergy and companion Vicrio to snap the mouse pointer to the appropriate default monitor? That's a really good idea. I don't know if they do it or not. I I, I did use Synergy for a while. Uh, it destroyed one of my computers. <laughs> so so I like Synergy. Like what happened was is I uh, I got a hard drive and somehow got it between two computers, and I didn't even know I was grabbing the hard drive. It was like accidental click on on it, and it got between two computers, and it just thumped. I mean, it, I had to grind one of my computers down to the ground, and I still don't even think it works as well as it did before. Like it, it really caused a lot of damage and so I haven't put it back on. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I go ahead, Courtney. I'm not sure what he means by snap the pointer I to think the what he means is that monitor. Set focus if to you whatever lose monitor your, you're over the top If of. you lose your mouse somewhere, you've got a whole bunch of monitors and you've got your mouse somewhere to be able to hit a button and have it come right back to the middle of the one that you've defined. Like this is, when I say hit this button, I want the mouse to come back to here. I don't, see. I don't know of anything that does that. There is a, under accessibility, there is a thing you can turn on for your mouse pointer that when you hit the button, it will make a little concentric circles around it to make it obvious where it is. And my problem feel is, it if it's buried underneath something, but it shouldn't be ever buried underneath anything. My problem is, is it, it could be buried in a monitor that I don't see. 
Like, because I have, I have monitors that are not visible at that moment. That's the issue that I have. Um, uh, there, there are programming, there are programming things. I have it in some of my programs that move the mouse, the, that you can tell it to move Reset the mouse it. to a certain, to a certain screen and a certain position on that screen. So yeah. it can be done programmatically. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, I remember reading about an EVS being used to play out graphics and other elements for a show, not just for replay. For static playout, what could the EVS offer that a hyperdeck or playout B can't? Well, I mean, the EVS is, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily use it if I was only doing graphics and small elements. I mean, we might use it if we had it in the truck. Uh, but the EVS is so powerful when you, like we did a... Um, I did a show on Monday where we used an EVS and what we were doing is it's a very long, you know, you've got all these interviews of people coming onto a, onto a red carpet and they all come in and they're, and basically we have to take a show that's an hour and a half long and compact it down to, to, to 30 minutes. And so what you do is you're interviewing all those folks and you're just loading those into the EVS, you know, um, as you go, and then you immediately bring them back as a live show and you just compact it all. You just, we were able to just suck all the, all the space out of it. But what was cool was in the last 15 minutes, it was all actually, you know, like live on, on the, on the location. So the first ones are all, you know, so you're, you're just cinching it out and the, the ability to do that. And you can do that. Here's the crazy thing with EVS. You can do that while you, um, uh, you could even do the last one while you're recording on the EBS. You can be playing out of the EBS at the same time you're recording. So you can be, so it's a, you know, so you, 10 seconds after you started recording, you hit play on it. It's just going to be right behind it, you know, just playing it out as it's coming in, which is a very, very powerful thing. So the EBS is incredible when you know how to use it and you use it for the right things. Using it for just play out. We do do that, but usually we do it because we're doing a bunch of other things. And and we are going to, in a two weeks, it was supposed to happen today, and I'm a little embarrassed by the fact. There's a whole bunch of, I told at the beginning, there's a whole bunch of rearrangement here, but uh, Robert Green's going to come on and talk a little bit about EBSs in a couple of weeks. So um, he'll talk, he can answer a lot more of these questions in detail. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you cover a lot of it. The EVS is a continuous recording device, like a TiVo or your DVR, that lets you pause live TV because uh, it's continuing to record in a loop all the time. And EVS, usually the loop is a 24-hour loop or a 12-hour loop, depending on how much uh, disk storage you have on it. But it's time code based, and it's always recording when you can play back. Both the HyperDeck and the Playout B cannot be recording and playing back at the same time. You record, then you stop recording, and then you can go back and play back what you recorded but it can't continue to record. So if you're going to go back and do a highlight, you're going to be missing some stuff unless you've got multiple playout Bs. Always, one's always recording while the other one's doing playback, and then you have a problem of managing which one you're on and which one has the holes in it, et cetera, et cetera. EVS handles it like a TiVo or like a DVR where it records continuously and can play back that stuff you know, microseconds after it's been recorded or an hour or two hours after it's been recorded just by going to time code markers in that continuous 24-hour stream. And the ability to trim EVS and clip things together and everything else is, is just a magical. So the other thing is, is that with the talented operator, they've got this... <laughs> This crazy little RS232 controller with the little little numbers and and they and they they know how to use it, uh, but uh, no one else does. Um, anyway, so you have to hire a UBS operator to make that actually work. Um, but the uh, this is this is not one of those things like Black Magic switchers. You can teach someone in a couple hours 
uh, to use. Uh, EBSs you can teach in a couple of years, like of, of constant use. They slowly come up to speed <laughs> where they're not. They start, most EBS operators, I think, I mean, Robert can tell us when he comes on, start off with like managing records. Like they're just managing records. We don't expect you to do any playback. We just need you to kind of understand what's what. And a lot of times when you're doing that, you're sitting there in front of the EBS for hours. And if you're smart, you'll sit there and play with it and try to figure out how to get the most out of it. And then you slowly move up to some basic playbacks. And after a long time, you might end up in a large broadcast or in football or whatever. So those are the things that, but it's a, it, it's a, it takes a long time to get good at it. Go ahead, Mitchell. I had so many hopes for my Hyperdeck shuttle. Just seemed uh, interesting because it's got that beautiful shuttle wheel on it. And I just want to top and tail and build a playlist like EVS can do. Uh, if they did get the software together, it might not compete with it, but it might just be a great, uh, you know, yeah. usage. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. From Jen Zolson in Sagal, Idaho. It's a QR code question. Does the MixPre work with the new iPhone 15 Pro? So I, I saw that I saw that question coming in, and I was kind of rushing around, throwing pieces together, trying to pull it all pull it all in. And I did so. Um, I didn't quite get it all working, mostly because I grabbed an old MixPre that had 48 volt grayed out, which I've never seen before. So I, I have to figure that out. Um, it does not like the power from the phone. We've talked about this before. The, the, the Mix Pre wants a lot of power. So I put some batteries on the back. It did show up in the, and immediately when I plugged it into the phone, it said, hey, is this a headphone? And I said, yes. And so there we go. Can it send out many channels into it? That's what I want to test next is can it put out um, four channels and deliver those to Blackmagic as an example? And I don't know if that's the case or not. Go ahead, Courtney. When it identifies as a headphone and you say yes, does it accept inputs from the Mix Pre 3 as an interface, a microphone interface? Yeah, so the problem was is that I that I what I couldn't figure out is I had a I, I just grabbed a headset. I didn't have a dynamic mic like handy when I did that. And so I, I couldn't and for some reason my old I have a very old Mix Pre that was just sitting sitting on my thing and I pulled it out and plugged it in and for some reason eight forty eight volt is is grayed out. I I've never seen it grayed out before, so I didn't know what I didn't know what to do. Yeah, you um, have to have a dual oh, USB. Oh, Mickey said that 48 volt grayed out means it's not getting enough current, which is, I guess, it didn't like the batteries. I, I had, I put cheap batteries in it, and as, as you as you may have guessed, it took about 40 minutes for it to just just idling. It just, it, it killed those batteries. So um, so anyway, so I uh, but but when I put them in, it wasn't probably the right ones. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, in the opening to the classic Europe music video for the final countdown. They show an engineer working with some sort of comms unit. Can anyone identify what it could be? There's a link to it. Um, this came in after. Huh? I didn't, hold on. Uh, we're just, I'm watching it. You can hear it in the background here. It's, it's very old. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's really old. It's probably an RTS. It's so or, yeah, it's probably or RTS. A, our clear, uh, clear comm system. My guess is RTS because it's kind of showing a truck. You know, every time you see RTS, you're like, oh, you use a truck. <laughs> you, know, when, you know, like you're, you're, when you see ClearCom, I always think, oh, you're in events. And if you have right, a, a Riedel, I go, oh, you have a lot of money. <laughs> and if you have RTS, I'm like, oh, you come from a truck. <laughs> so those are, the, those are the, the things. My guess is probably an RTS system. Uh, uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, asking, shooting mainly outdoors with mirrorless 15 Pro Max GoPro opinions, on matched neutral density filters for all. Oh man. I think well, number one is I think that you want to match, you're gonna to want to really think about 
you have to standardize your color balance, your color temperature, and your ISO to something that looks similar to each other under probably controlled lighting. And then you would, um, you're going to have to, it's just going to take some testing. I don't think, there's no mathematical, like, I think it'll, I mean, I'm sure there is a mathematical way to do this, but I don't know what it is. So, so you would, I would take it out and, and get them, but you have to lock them. So I would use in the, in the, uh, black magic one, I would set, I would use the black magic camera, make sure I set everything to manual, make sure I set things to a specific value. And then, then you're going to test that against the GoPro in, in largely a manual mode and try to figure out where, where those line up. Yeah. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if you could put a uh, matte box on it and just use the same neutral density filter, then do your color matching to make it happen. But, yeah. um, I think that would mess your LIDAR up on your 15. Uh, I could. I think that there's going to be some, you're, you can get around two of the lenses, not the third lens, but two of the lenses without that. Go ahead, Courtney. I'm not sure what he's trying to do to match the GoPro to the 15 Pro Max. Is that what he's trying to do? Yeah. In which With, case, you know, and, both and have of those ND cameras, filters. yeah, but even if you have matched ND filters, uh, you might match the color shift for the ND filter, but uh, the amount of exposure, you know, is controlled differently on those two cameras because they change their shutter speed. Uh, to control the amount of light coming in. So they might end up being different depending upon the speed of the lens in each individual camera to begin with. So it may not look the same anyway. You know, if you move them to all manual, though, you can you can line them up so that they're only, you know, they're not doing anything automatically. Um, and then mm. and then I think that you're... You, you, yeah, but you they pass a different amount of light through the, each lens. Lenses are different. Mm. The optical path is different. And the coloration of the lenses is different. You're going to have to fix it in post in, in any case. So I, I yeah. wouldn't worry too much about uh, having matched <laughs> neutral density filters. I, 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 would, I would try to get as close as you could before you... As a per person who worked in post for a long time, the thing that drives us crazy is someone decided that it, it was... There's no good way to do this. So we're not going to do anything on set. And then you're like... You know, if you would have gotten them close, it would have been, this would have looked a lot nicer. <laughs> so, so, so like, I think it's worth doing some R&D uh, and then, and then, and then decide making the decision there. Yeah, we'll fix um, that in post. Yeah, I, I love, there was, we had someone with a t-shirt that said, how about we fix it in pre? <laughs> so, so like, you know, like, and so anyway, uh, next question. Rajan Shandil from Los Angeles asking, what hub would you recommend to add multiple USB-C ports to a Mac and a PC? I don't know what, which one specifically. It depends on what you're looking for. Generally, I lean again, uh, lean towards OWC. So that's those the OWC hubs are the the most solid ones in my opinion. Um, after that, it might you know Anchor and Geffen are, aren't bad ones either. But but I would you know I would look for an OWC solution uh, first and then go to other things. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I, I agree with OWC, and you might. It depends on whether you want to uh, maintain Thunderbolt four compatibility through that those USB-C ports and whether your PC and your Mac both supplied. You can always, uh, it'll normally work for USB uh, 3 or 3.1. Uh, whether or not it'll carry Thunderbolt is another is another question. So you'd have to make sure that you get a dock if you need Thunderbolt out, but uh, for high speed, uh, you have to make sure that it can pass Thunderbolt through those USB-Cs. Next question. Alton Christensen from New York City, New York, New York. I like the way the Blackmagic camera app on iOS records time of day time code. Why don't other apps do the same? Uh, because they're not thinking about production. <laughs> like, you know, I think that, you know, they don't. Uh, so here's the thing. A lot of the camera app manufacturers before Blackmagic arrived, really, they, they, this is where they started. They started on the phone. 
They didn't have other things. They didn't have other hardware. They didn't have to integrate into other productions. And so they were building something. They're like, oh, right, we, we should use time code. And oh, yeah, that would be really good. Black Magic came from the other direction. So they came in with, we already built cameras. We have, we've, we've spent the last decade talking to people about what our cameras didn't have or did have or whatever. So they went through a whole bunch of that. And they took all of that learning and just shoved it into the into the camera. I did a record last night. I mean, a very high-end record. My daughter's first uh, rock band gig um, uh, was uh, last night. And so I shot I shot the footage for it. And, um, and uh, you know, I... I used the black magic. I wanted to use the black magic. Uh, the first time I've really shot anything more than a, about a 30 second test. What a great app. <laughs> you know, like it's just like a really cool app with all the stuff exactly where I wanted it and, um, and just kind of put it together. So it, it, I, as a camera person, as a camera person's camera app on your phone. And so it's a, it's a pretty, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that there is a difference between time of day, time code, and professional time code, which is at 2398 because it's not real time. And the other thing is it's not uh, most of the clocks that are in uh, you know, consumer-type cameras are not temperature-compensated crystals. So if they do have their uh, local time code clock, it's not going to maintain accuracy over a long period of time if you have a way of jamming it together to jam it to something else. Uh, because it doesn't, ha it'll drift over a period of time. So using it to be frame accurate to line up in post is kind of problematic. Well, they include it in there because it's useful for locating stuff just within a second or two. That's fine, uh, or within you know how many frames it's out by drift. But just bear in mind that uh, one tenth of one percent is the drift between real time and uh, non-drop time code, which is what's always recommended for recording. Uh, so it will drift quickly out of sync if you don't have that. If you don't have both things running in non-drop timecode, which is not normally real time uh, time of day. Yeah, and and the the uh, I, I do believe the Blackmagic camera can be connected to a tentacle, so a tentacle sync to give it you know to give it actual you know some timecode there from a transmission. So those are other things it can do. So it's pretty cool. Next question. Tony Mobley from Noonan, Georgia asks, if someone has an iPhone 14 Pro Max, should they upgrade to 15 Pro Max besides that USB-C connection? Um, the camera's a lot better, <laughs> you know, and now you can record ProRes and a lot of other things. So it just depends on what you're trying to do. If you're, for what you do, Tony, for the most part, I would say probably not. I don't think, that, I don't think there's a lot that for, the 14 is going to give you that the 15 doesn't. But if you're shooting on... If you're thinking, oh, I might go out and shoot ProRes or I might go out and shoot these other things, then it might be worth it. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. It depends on your carrier. A lot of the carriers are offering you a free phone if you sign up for another three years contract or something. So if you're happy with your character and you want to get a new phone, a lot of times they'll give you a new one with a trade-in on the old one for free as long as you agree to keep paying their exorbitant uh, monthly, monthly yeah. Uh, subscription fees. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. QR code question from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. I want to draw, write, and make my own comic book on actual paper and custom merch with a 3D printer. How can I get my hand drawings into my M2? Is there an app to put these drawings together? Yeah, I mean, I think that the easiest way to do it, actually, I mean, you can scan them. You can get a scanner and scan them. Uh, and for the kind of things of getting your drawing in, some of the less expensive, like, all-in-one printer scanners will probably work fine for what you're trying to do. Um, you can also take a picture of it. You, um, I take a lot of stuff where I'm, you know, if you're just doing drawings that are going to be used as reference, um, take your iPhone out if you have an iPhone or an Android and just take a take a photo of it. There's a lot of apps that will 
rectify any kind of distortion that, that happened there or any kind of perspective skew. Uh, it'll rectify those automatically and um, give you back an image that is relatively good. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I would uh, I would oppose taking a picture of it because you have to deal with lighting and right, you know, the angle of the camera versus the flatness of the uh, drawing. So any any of the almost all of the uh, uh, all in one printers have a built in color scanner that is pretty good. It's a line operated CCD scanner with a a line illuminator, so you will not have any shadows or any of those problems. And if it has a flat platent, you know, flat glass on the top, so it's you know, doesn't necessarily have to feed it through. It's a little safer to feed your priceless drawings through. You don't want them to jam up in the auto feeder, but uh, I'd put them on the glass and scan them. Make sure you clean the glass first. And I think you'll get a pretty good uh, color representation out of uh, those scanners. It won't be maybe as, you know, HDR like you would with a phone, but a linear scanner is going to be a little more dimensionally accurate than a phone picture. Next question. QR code question from David in London, UK. The ATAM Extreme ISO input 3 is not functioning and no image is displayed regardless of the source, including cameras and computers. Interestingly, when I insert an HDMI splitter, it starts working and displays an image. Any solution for this? Go ahead, Mitchell. I know this sounds blatantly obvious, but try switching out the HDMI cable you're using uh, to drive that uh, input on three, unless you're plugging in directly with different cables. Um, you'd be surprised how many HDMI cables just will not work on uh, different cameras and different devices. So swap the cable out with something you know works well. Yeah, I think that it seems like I, I lean towards what Mitchell's talking about, that there's a problem with your cable. Um, it, it just feels like that you might be taking that cable and plugging into a bunch of things, but that's still the cable is, is the thing that is the constant source there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and the fact that if you put a splitter in, it could be the signal level, it could be the cable that you're using doesn't have, an, you know, has an impedance mismatch, so the signal isn't getting a strong enough signal through it. But if you put it through the splitter, it's going to amplify that signal up to a point and reshape the signal a little bit, uh, reclock the signal as it goes through that splitter. And it could have to do with HDCP, but it depends on if you're using a camera, it usually doesn't have the yeah. copyright. It's not normally encoded, encoded with HDCP. But uh, remember, ATEM does not support HDCP, so if you have something that has the copyright bit set like a Blu-ray player and you plug it in, it may be black because of HDCP. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, as a reference, go to the uh, Condor Blue website and look what Gerald Undone has to say about different HDMI cables. Literally, he tried different cables from different manufacturers, including Amazon, and some would work with his Sony camera, some would not. So <clears throat> it might be best if it's green or, excuse me, if it's blue or purple. Next question. Next question coming in from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. I had someone to tell that my iPhone as my camera is a bad idea that should replace with a Brio. I disagree with, what does the panel think? I used the Shoot app with the iPhone. Uh, the iPhone in any, if you have an iPhone 14, I'm only saying that because you asked the last question, uh, the video quality on the iPhone 14 will be higher than the Brio considerably. You're like, it's not close. Uh, anything probably past the iPhone 11 is probably better than the Brio um, as far as the total quality. The disadvantage is, is that you've got your phone tied up in something. 
and you might get messages or you might need it or you might other things. So, but if, if you're going for video quality, your iPhone is going to be better. Apple spends more money on it than Logitech. <laughs> you know, so, so the, uh, uh, so they've got, you know, a Logitech I'm sure has a great engineering team. Apple's got two or 300 engineers that only pay attention to the camera. So, so the, um, and that's from like a CNN interview years ago, and that's probably twice as many now. So, uh, so it's a, so I, I think that you're, I would stick with the Apple color science over the Brio. The only thing I would say is just convenience, the chance of it doing something other than that. Uh, those are the only things that I would, I would, I would, that would affect my decision there. Next question. From the QR drop, here's a question from Michael Tan in San Diego, California. What best states to move to for media production jobs? San Diego is getting a little expensive. I mean, there are media production jobs all over. <laughs> it's just a matter of finding a community that you can be part of that and being useful in that community. Go ahead, Courtney. Depends on what kind of media you want to work in. If you're looking for theatrical features, move to Atlanta because most of the theatrical feature work moved to Atlanta because they were paying, the state was paying big incentives to producers to move their productions there. So there's a lot of union work and non-union work in Atlanta. Uh, also, New Orleans is another runaway state if you're looking to move somewhere where it has a uh, robust production uh, uh, environment. Uh, New Orleans or Atlanta are two big non, uh, non-coastal non states uh, that uh, have a, a large amount of film and video production going on. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, speaking for the East Coast, uh, we have a little bit of a media recession here in the mid-Atlantic region, including Philadelphia. But if you go to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is thriving uh, for production. So if you want to try someplace out on the East Coast, come out here. And of course, the ever-present uh, Washington, D.C. is always very busy. Yeah, and you know, in the early 90s, uh, the only place that made more movies than Pittsburgh, of all places, um, is was Hollywood. <laughs> like, it was literally, it was the busiest one. And uh, the and Pittsburgh, you know, it was not, and it was because of the, all of Pittsburgh, the, the weirdest twist Pittsburgh is a very heavy union town, but the big thing was the film crews were not union, and that's why everyone was shooting there is because they, you could make Pittsburgh look like anything. Um, you know, just got all these different communities. You could make it look like New York or Chicago or whatever, depending on where you shot, and it was all non-union crew. Uh, so the New York unions came in to unionize the Pittsburgh, and the first time they came in, uh, actually when they went into the meeting – a bunch of Pittsburgh film crew pick, picked up their car and turned it upside down and set it back down. Um, and uh, and they flipped their car to tell them to go away and they pushed them off. But, you know, over, uh, depending on who you talk in Pittsburgh, it was a, uh, a pretty rough negotiation. Some folks got hurt, <laughs> you know, in Pittsburgh. And um, and they uh, and the, they finally, uh, um, you know, uh, unionized and then everything was gone. <laughs> like it all went to New York. Like, and I think that in Pittsburgh, most of us felt like the unionization was just to bring the work back to New York and not let it be in Pittsburgh. And so um, that's what happened uh, in, in Pittsburgh. And so now it's regaining its stuff, but it, it was building up to be the center of, I mean, it was an incredible amount of work that was being done there for a while. And then it just dried up. I mean, literally the, the month after they unionized, it disappeared. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, not to get into a too deep a discussion on that, but uh, here in the Philadelphia region, we're a little jealous of Pittsburgh. We're in the same state. Um, how much of the work ends up going there? And I think it's partly because uh, the New York Union um, has a little bit more control over Philadelphia being that much closer. Yeah, the 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 issue in Pittsburgh, though, is that, the uh, to be honest with you, it's safer to shoot in Pittsburgh than it is in Philadelphia. 
I mean, that's, I mean, I know that I talk to folks about that and they, they're, it's not a matter of the union. It's a matter of that they, they, the, Pittsburgh is a little, it's not that it's perfect, but it's, Philadelphia has gotten a little hectic, you know, like, you know, um, to, to shoot in some parts of town. And I think that there's not as many places in Pittsburgh that are that way. There are some, but not as many. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what you might look for is right-to-work states because these uh, don't allow the unions in to uh, monopolize uh, production in that particular state. You have the right to work, so they don't have to. Uh, the unions have less less control. Although there there is a lot of union work in those right-to-work states, they just have different contracts that are much lower than the rates that you would get uh, in their standard basic agreement that's uh, implemented on the west coast or the east coast. And you We'd remember to have you here in Delaware. The, and, the, and the thing to remember is that, that it doesn't matter if, if, you're, if, if you're doing a major film production, it's going to be a union production anyway because the, the, the production companies, we saw all these negotiations, are signatories. And so they're signatories and so they've already agreed to work with the union. And, and I will say, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I was negative against that. It's just that it really hurt Pittsburgh specifically. But there is a stability of being able to call the union and say, I need this many people and this many people and this many people. And you have people who have a reasonably good chance of knowing what they're doing showing up. Trying to staff that without the hall is pretty complicated for a lot of these things. So there's a stability that the union ad, ad, adds to the production that is very valuable. Go ahead, Courtney. But there are ways around that that what a lot of production companies will do, especially with commercial production. Uh, they'll want, let's say, their DP is a union. He insists on being paid in the union. But uh, you got a lot of local people that are, aren't in the union. There's not a local where you're shooting. You can... Uh, they hire payroll companies, and the payroll company serves as the uh, signature so that um, they are the employer of reference, uh, employer mm -hmm. of record, so that the payroll company can have two branches, a non-union branch and a union branch. And if you're in the union, you run your payroll through the union branch. If you're non-union, you run it through the non-union branch of the same payroll company, and that's how they handle getting mixed crews with union and non-union in the same crew, although it is frowned upon by the union. Yeah, and and I will say in non-union like strongholds, you know, like like L.A. and New York, a lot of the union guys work non-union when they're not being called by the hall. <laughs> like so, so they're so the um, so the uh, so that 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 kind of happens there. But you're you're right that I mean I think that there I don't know if there's a specific state. I know that you know North Carolina is uh, um, you know has, has gotten pretty you know big as far as some some of these things. So North Carolina has, has, is a pretty good production state. Right now, I think that there's a lot building up in Texas and Florida as well. So, for a variety of reasons, and so those are so those are other states to look at um, in those in those areas. But the biggest thing is is that you you want to um, uh, it's really where your community is. I, I I see media production being done pretty much all over the world. It's just a matter of who you know in that in that location is going to what's going to make the difference. Uh, next question. From Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas, is the office hours equipment stacks frame rate actually thirty or twenty nine nine seven? Uh, we run twenty nine. Uh, we we run twenty nine nine seven, and then I think it's converted to thirty on the way out. But it's yeah, you can't. It's really hard to run video equipment at thirty. Like you may stream it at thirty going out, but you can't. It's it's a yeah, it's painful to run everything in whole frames uh, because everything is designed around those drop frames. Uh, next question. Uh, next question coming in, I believe, is uh, already been answered, but it's a QR code coming from Abe Barrera in Flowery Branch. What's your opinion on Twit TV regarding business? Will they be able to continue or will they have to change the way they work? Yes and yes. 
they will be able to continue and they will have to change the way they work. <laughs> like, I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, and I think that they're all figuring out what that looks like. And that's going to include uh, Club Twit, which I think is really, I mean, I was a proponent that Club Twit, that kind of thing was where to go from early on. So I'm, I think that Leo's going the right direction of having people be part of the conversation there and, and being less de dependent on advertisers. And I think, so I think that they're doing all the right things to, in that area. So uh, it's just hard. To, it, it's one of those things that just takes a long time to build up. Uh, next question. Peter Belbin from Houston, Texas wants to know, with the impending SpaceX Starship test launch coming up soon, which way do you like to watch it, directly from SpaceX or via other YouTube streamers or a combination, perhaps? And are there particular reasons why? Go ahead, Courtney. I like to watch it lying on the beach at Boca Chica. It's, uh, it's much more exciting there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, they keep on getting better at it. I, I, I feel like... SpaceX is the furthest along as far as the launch goes. Um, I, or I, well, I, and I will say that the, the Blue Origin ones have gotten better as well. So those two, I feel like every, there's a real opportunity that is lost a lot of times in adding, really adding a lot of data and making every one of these launches a bit of a education lesson and getting people excited about space. And, you know, you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on the launch. You might as well use it as a backdrop to teach kids and inspire the next generation of astronauts and, and engineers and so on and so forth. And I, I feel like they, they've lost, they, they lose that opportunity when they don't do that. Uh, next question. Tony Mobley from Newton, Georgia asking, is there an opportunity for office hours to use GPTs in its production? You know, not yet. Um, and I don't think that it would be something we would do anytime particularly soon. Where, where GPT, where we think GPT is going to make a difference in some things is when we have really high volumes of questions and being able to group them and manage them and so on and so forth. Not necessarily generating questions or generating content, but really helping us manage the content more intelligently and hand it back to an operator um, in a way that would be very, very difficult to even have, even if you had a crew. So for some of the shows that, that we do with Mukana um, or an, an offset of Mukana we call Comenda, um, the... I think the record that we've had right now is about over 6,000 questions in 20 minutes. So here we have uh, 41 questions in two hours, but we, we have a much higher volume on some of the other things we use the product for. It would be nice right now, we just kind of go through them as fast as we can, but it'd be nice to go through them and figure things out on the way through. And so that, that's the thing. Those are the things we think that AI is going to be good to help us with because even if I if there's a certain level of efficiency of management of I can add a lot of people it's not going to help me I need something to be able to look at all of this stuff instantly as it comes in but then still hand it to a human to make the final decisions on those processes go ahead Courtney yeah and if you're on the uh, on the Windows side of the world uh, I just this machine that I'm on now just updated itself to 23h2 which is the latest version of Windows that has copilot built in huh, uh, so whenever you search whenever I do a search or something I just type into the uh, URL of the edge browser and it immediately uses uh, GPT three or four to research whatever question I asked and it gives me an, a nice verbal output uh, organized correctly that I could read directly if I wanted to, but I look at when it comes back from a search rather than just a standard Google search with links that I would have to follow up with. Next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. A follow-up question uh, on a previous Sunday. Any update on smart switch self-use of energy? I still have issues with them warming up due to powering Wi-Fi and perhaps the amount of energy used to activate relays when on. Yeah, we haven't 
haven't gone very far on that. So we'll, we'll keep on trying to figure that out. I, I keep on meaning to do a kilowatt on mine just to see what it's actually using. Uh, when, I think is one of the things we were talking about is like how much is it used when it's off? And I don't, and I don't know what that number is. And so, so we'll, we'll keep on. I do have a kilowatt in my, I just haven't been able to get it working. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I have a problem in my house that I just discovered the other day because uh, I have now that it's getting cool, I have uh, electric heaters because uh, there's no central air in this hundred year old building. So uh, I have electric heaters, and I find that if I turn on um, two electric heaters, they're fifteen hundred watts each, which is a maximum allowable. I have my UPS here, which has a voltage readout. It drops to ninety four volts which is a bit of a problem because the wiring in this building can't handle <laughs> much more than that. So I don't know what I can do about that. I just have to be make, you know, wear thicker clothing and only use one heater at a time. Otherwise, things that my you know vacuum sealer doesn't work quite as well because it doesn't get hot enough at 94 volts. And so far, the computers haven't reset, uh, which is nice. And they're running off the UPS. But I hear the UPS click in all the time whenever a heater comes on or whenever a printer now, warms up, you know. Do, to, do you ever use a voltage rectifier? A voltage rectifier? Yeah, there's, we have these little boxes that we use um, around the world because we have the same problem you're having. To convert like AC I, to DC, you mean? Nope, nope. It, it, well, that's what gonna, a rectifier does. But what I mean, what it, what it does is it, it brings, no matter what voltage it comes in, what goes out is 120 or 240 or 220, whatever you yeah. set it to. It's gonna, it's gonna always, so whatever, so we plug stuff into that. Like the reason we got into that, because there was one day in Zimbabwe where I, uh, I was- The voltage we were, regulator, not rectifier. I'm sorry, I, I meant regulator, sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, sorry. So, um, the, so it's a long, long morning. Um, anyway, but the regulator, we, we had one where we were in Zimbabwe and they do, um, they turn the power off regularly, you know, to uh, load, to um, load balance and um, for, for the things and so, you always have four to six in the afternoon was always just no electricity. And so we, which was actually quite relaxing, you know, it was tea time. So we would have, um, uh, uh, so we would have tea and then sit around and talk and think about things and everything else because nothing else to do. And we had laptops, so we, we could do some stuff. Anyway, when it came back on within the first half hour, sometimes you got these surges and we, we suddenly realized there was one day we looked up and we were like, it's really bright in here. I can't quite figure out what happened. And then literally sparks were coming out of our power supplies. And um, that was uh, that was the end of that. And so the um, but uh, uh, so we started getting really focused on those. And um, uh, the uh, I put them into old buildings all the time now. And it just means that nothing gets the wrong you have to be careful of how many amps you're pulling so i wouldn't put it in the heater but i'd put it in all the electronics uh, because that voltage up and down the computers will run we found this in africa the computers will keep running but the power supply will slowly die like it'll just it'll just slowly you know it'll just one day you'll get up and it's not working anymore go ahead courtney yeah the power supply will overheat if you get below 90 volts and eventually fail uh, that's um, a big problem. One one time, here's a short story because we have some time. Um, in college, uh, I was at the university, uh, Texas A&M University, and in a dorm room. It was the night before finals. And uh, was watching TV, and suddenly I noticed that the TV picture was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I thought, gee, are the lights quite as bright? And I looked out the window, and the entire campus was getting dimmer 
and dimmer, you think you're going blind because all the lights, the TV's getting smaller, all the lights are dimming everywhere you can see out the window, the street lights, everything is getting dimmer and dimmer. And what happened is the main generator, that campus has its own generating facility. The main generator had blown a bearing and the <laughs> online generator was slowing down and slowing. slowing down and the whole campus just dimmed down, dimmed down, dimmed down yeah. to zero. It took about five minutes for it to spend down. But yeah. It was strange, and it blew up a lot of equipment. <laughs> oh, man. Next question. Next one in from Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. I'd like to test vMix on Windows with eight HDMI inputs and outputs. What devices do you use for PC HDMI connections? Uh, I would use, uh, I think that Blackmagic makes uh, deck links that are for each, so it'd probably do two cards, uh, in, and you should be able to get eight uh, HDMI inputs there. Um, but you could get higher density if you went to SDI, uh, you, you know, but, but if you're doing HDMI, two, two Blackmagic Declink cards uh, would, would do the job. You can't get any density that I know of higher than four on a, and it's just the way that HDMI works. You can't get any in them closer. You can actually get 16 in. There's a, AJA makes a card that's 16 in on SDI, little mini DINs. Next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. I bit the bullet and subscribed to ChatGPT+. What would you recommend to use to its fullest? Go, John. I, I use it for everything. I use every outgoing piece of composition that I write now goes out GPT plus first. So you're using it in normal business communications. It's, it, it's super helpful in writing websites, which was, was the number one hurdle in getting websites done for clients is writing their description of their own company, which would take weeks. Now that stuff's a breeze on, on GPT. Uh, and then there's... I don't know how many plugins. There's over 800 plugins now, and there's probably three good ones. But all the newest, latest, greatest <laughs> features, the GPTs, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. The GPTs is where I would set some focus and, and kick around and and create some of your own GPTs. You'll get some good uh, momentum there. Go ahead, Courtney. I heard, I haven't tested it yet, I'm not a member, but uh, that they paused new memberships right now because they were so overloaded that they couldn't handle the workload now for GPT-3 and that uh, the free stuff is no longer available at all and the subscription stuff they put a moratorium on and limited the number of people that can sign up is what I heard. I haven't verified that yet. Yeah, I use it. I use it a lot. I, mean, I, I have been having fun with it. It The images that it makes, for instance, you can do Dolly now with it and the images that it makes aren't as realistic as what Midjourney does, but they are, you can negotiate with it better. So you can say, like, I'll put something up and I'll, and I, uh, uh, I'll say, do this. And then I just say, no, no, n not that many people, or this needs to be a different lighting, or I don't have to sit there and try to figure out the prompt. I just sit there and just give it the adjustments I wanted to make. And I, it's, it's just much easier to get to a certain look. Um, it just it just doesn't make it as realistic. So if you're looking for realism, you still go to Midjourney. But I use it for I have it open every day. I use it a lot just for um, brainstorming. What does this do? What is how does this work? Or explain explain to me explain to me as if I'm a fifth grader. Like you know this you know and I'll and the the key there is that I'll and I've said this before. I tell you who you I tell ChatGPT this is who you are. 
this is what I want you to do. And this is the target. You know, I'm a student, I'm a teacher, I'm a whatever. And it will reframe all of that very effectively. And then beyond all of that, I make a lot of soups that are all designed by ChatGPT. <laughs> so so, it, so it's, a, it's actually in a training. I got, I got a request from NHK in Japan. Can we use the pictures in your description for the ChatGPT? And I was like, sure. You know, send it, I sent them all the stuff. Uh, next question. Tony Mobley, Noonan, Georgia, asking, I need to replace my current iPhone camera in my setup. I have extra iPhones to use. Should it only have iPhone camera apps like Shoot and Filmic? I would definitely limit it, limit the apps to exactly what you need. If you're going to use it as a camera, use it as a camera. Uh, you want to make sure that, you know, whatever you're using, make sure you can remote control from another phone. I, I haven't tried that with Shoot. Shoot's a great app. Um, but Filmic definitely does that. So um, so think about, you know, that that process there. Next question. Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. I need to replace my pull-apart foam from my Pelican 1500 series case. Moving camera equipment in and out have made it a mess over time. Any brand of case foam recommendations? Yeah, there is a... Um, uh, hold on, let me just see if I can find it really quickly. There is a company, it's uh, My Case Builder, and we actually talked to them at um we did a, we we did we talked to them at NAB and uh, they have a lot of the stuff built in so you can go in and design like I have this camera and I have this lens and you can lay it all out in their software on their website and then they will print it out anything that people have done before or they can do something custom for you What's, they make a really not I mean I looked at the, the stuff and if I ever needed it I don't do as much of that now um, where I need the same thing every time. But if I need the same thing every time, mycasebuilder.com is exactly where I would go. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I don't have any uh, brand recommendations, but uh, a lot of times when I was building cases and ordering foam, I would avoid the polyester foam, which is the normal, very flexible foam, and go with ethafoam, which is polyethylene foam. And the polyethylene foam is the kind that you can get with that healed surface on it, so it's got a smooth surface on it. It is far less shock absorbing than the polyester foam, but it holds up and won't disintegrate, won't oxidize, and a lot of problems with some of the older polyester foams is uh, over years after being exposed to oxygen, they turn into dust, which gets into all of your equipment and contaminates it. And polyethylene foam I've had for 50 years in cases and it's still solid, hasn't broken down at all. Next question. Robin Cutshaw from Atlanta, Georgia asked, follow up on my HDMI input output to my PC for vMix. I don't have sufficient PCIe slots for cards. External HDMI input and output? I don't know how you get a lot of high density of, of internal output other than getting something like a sonnet box or some kind of box for your PC that's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a USB-C to it, but I don't even know if you could get the speeds that you need. So I think it's a little bit more complicated if you have to go outside of your box and get that kind of density. But I haven't done external devices. You know, you may still need at least a PCI to um, plug in so that you could get the external devices back onto that bus. Uh, yeah, go to Courtney. Yeah, you may. There's some people that make an NVMe adapter that goes into an NVMe that accesses the PCI bus directly on some smaller machines, right. and then you can bring that out to a card holder that can hold an outboard card that could give you multiple inputs. So you might look into an adapter like that that plugs into an NVMe uh, a connector. Next if question. You have multiple NVMe connectors on your laptop or whatever. Next question. Peter Belbin, Houston, Texas. Can I or could I uh, use the sound devices Mix Pre 2 to act as a host? 
to a USB-connected audio interface to expand the physical I.O. and perhaps use USB for Dante connectivity, USB AVO? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Um, I heard that you cannot plug the AVO, but I don't have personal knowledge of that, but I was poo-pooed on that particular uh, question some time ago. Yeah, I don't... You could plug... <laughs> yeah, I don't think you could add... You could plug the... It, it, I don't think you could do the USB AVO into um, a mix pre... That wouldn't have the proper, you know, drivers or whatever to do this. It's just not how the mix pre is designed. It's not designed to bring in more audio that way. Um, so that wouldn't work. But you could take an audio that was going, that, you know, punched out to analog. It wouldn't extend your mix pre, but it would allow you to deliver. If you had analog to Ethernet, it would allow you to deliver via H, um, uh, deliver uh, Dante to a mix pre if you wanted to without plugging into something else. Go ahead, Courtney. Can't hear you, Courtney. I agree. <laughs> Although the Mixpreys do have USB ports on them, they're designed for work with HID devices like keyboards and mouse uh, rather than uh, uh, host hosting USB AVC inputs. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, and if you want to get uh, Dante, you can go up to, uh, I think it's a Series 8 or a Scorpio, and it has Dante built in. There you go. Well, very good. Good, good set of questions here from our producers. Uh, so thanks for, for keeping this uh, all running and letting us uh, have a great conversation this morning. Filled up the whole two hours. I thought we might fill up an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 20, but we got all the way through and, and about the same average number of, uh, of questions there. Um, and uh, thanks to the panel. We can't do this without you. So it's good to have everybody here. And uh, it was a good, good, good conversation. Uh, that worked out really well. So, um, so anyway, so thanks to the panel for being here and being part of the conversation. Um, tomorrow, of course, we'll be talking about the website and what people want to see and, and what features we want to have there. Um, and uh, thanks to the uh, incredible team on the back end that makes this all work every single day. We have not missed a day. I, I keep on when I say it, 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 it now feels, I, I've been saying it a couple times recently, We've not missed a day since March 25th, 2020. That, is a, that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And, and it, there was some point where I thought this was going to last like three or four months. And uh, we just try to help everybody. And then, then it gets to a point where you're like, well, I don't want to quit now. Like, like you know, or, or you don't want to slow down now because we've, we've, we've gotten such a good pattern. But the only reason we can do that is because of the incredible team that's managing this, developing software and, and uh, process and also just developing the, the, you know, making all of this work and actually executing this on every single day. And we really appreciate your contribution. We can't do this without you. Uh, we traveled 105,000 miles today answering all these questions. That's 169,000 uh, kilometers. And that is 836 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Yeah, that, those batteries did not. I, I grabbed some like consumer batteries that I just use in the house. I was like digging them out and put them into this mix pre and it did not. Man, it was like gone. Aren't they likely them. to leak? 10 minutes. Nah, they, didn't they didn't do no, 10 minutes. It actually sock. did. It did 40 minutes before it was like, hey, we're dying. <laughs> this was 40 minutes. And it was like, but but you got to get, I put in the Amazon basics. Like these are like my house ones, oh, you yeah. know, and, and it did not, it did not handle that very well. The batteries so. are on the outside of the Mix Pre 3. So they clip on in this little removable yeah. caddy. So and I only have, I, the, the one I have is the four. You know, I only have the four battery one. Yeah, yeah, there's an eight battery one too. There's a sure. dummy the four battery, battery version. doesn't last a The dummy battery version. 40 minutes, is that but I wasn't doing use? anything. Uh, no, no, this was a four. It's got like a little, you know, it's got like a little, it'll hold four of them in here. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was like, I, I thought that the question.